1: everybody, tonight we're debating evolution and we are starting right now with Benjamin and Free's opening statement. Thanks so much for being with us and the floor is all yours.
0: Okay, Uh, so I'm gonna start us off. Hopefully I'll take about five minutes um, and then I'll turn it over to Neff because I know he has a lot more talking points. Um, I'm gonna make one specific point and then a few side points off it. Uh, So I don't in total, think that the evolutionary theory uh, is impossible in all senses. I also don't think it's unreasonable in all senses. But I definitely think certain components of it are unreasonable. Um, And so that is where I'm going to start with the odds. And let me do a share screen real quick. so, please uh, pardon, I'm sharing an Excel sheet that I just built. And so it is terribly choppy. So, I'm just walking you through this to show the math that I did. Um, so, I'm going to calculate the odds of an amino acid chain coming together uh, so that we can progress from a single celled bacteria up to a human and based on the size of their genomes and whatnot. Um, so, with how objects are arranged and whatnot, uh, it's, the numbers go up very quickly with unlike objects, but we've got 20 bait or not 20 base pairs, 20 amino acids that are that are built from the different codons and whatnot. I didn't include the um, stops I think I should have so it should have been 21. Either way, once you get up above 20, then you get into the, the part w- uh, where it really slows down the, um, the total um, smaller differences are made each time, but the differences are still going to be pretty substantial. So let's jump into that. So if we just have one amino acid, then there's only one possible combination, and that's down here in the results. Again, this is terribly janky as an Excel sheet. Um, I build them partially for a living, so I made this very quickly, so I do apologize. Um, And if it's unclear, I'll I'll talk about whatever I need to on it. So that's one, and this is um, just for all those viewing. With two, there's two pairs available. So then once you get up to three, well, now there's six pairs available. Once you get up to 25, or oops, once you get up to five, there's 120 available. So down here, I'm making some assumptions, and they're pretty generous assumptions. I'm not taking a lot of things into consideration with this amino acid change, such as um, left-handed and right-handed amino acid pairs, as well as the fact I think for the human genome, there's nine essential amino acids, which makes the whole situation more complicated. So I'm leaving all of that out, one, because I don't know all the nuance of it, and two, because this is actually a, a far more generous number I'm going to be going with. So based on the current number of estimated bacteria in the earth today, so that's what I'm going off of. Well, I assume there'd be far less back in the day when this was happening. Um, we have, uh, and I left it, I didn't um, put it in exponents, I left it with all the zeros just to be more of a visual effect to show how incredibly large these numbers are. I think this is five undecillion. That's roughly how many bacteria are on the earth today uh, with a reproduction rate of five minutes. And that's with every one of them reproducing every five minutes. So that's a perfect reproduction rate. And this is going to be more of a recycle rate. We're not going to have five and then 10 and then 15. It's always going to be five even, uh, reproducing into five more and so on. So with a five minute reproduction rate and a mutation rate uh, per generation of 0.003. So of every 1,000 specimens three of them will have some kind of significant mutation that is going to give us from this whole total picture that I painted again very sloppy so I do apologize it's going to give us a rate per minute of um, I don't think this is the same thing it's like octillion and then the rate per year this is how many uh, mutations are taking place uh, per year Um, so coming up here to our calculator If I take our amino acids and this amino acid chain, let's take it up to 35, and I jump down here. Here I have how many seconds it takes to require to acquire that amino acid chain based on the odds. So even with this incredible number of um, of possibilities in that amino acid chain, we're still going to reach that in about 10 seconds. So that's pretty fantastic. But if we take that up to 50. Now we're almost up to a day. Okay, well, that's not a very big change. Jump up to 80. Well, that's down up to 80. Well, now we start running into problems. Not only does the evolutionists have to decrease their font size to get their total result, we're already up to 630 million years to acquire that chain. And this is only 80 links of the chain. If we take this up to 100, we have now surpassed. Again, we have to decrease the font size. We've now surpassed the timeline that evolution allows for. We're up to 18 trillion years just to acquire, by random chance, an amino acid chain that is 100 links long. Uh, and then down here, if we go into the the DNA structure of the bacteria, bacteria have roughly seven million base pairs in their in their being. Human beings have three billion base pairs, which means that human beings have roughly 2.993 billion more base pairs than bacteria so this and and a lot of that is not only going to be um uh morphological changes but also anatomic changes so all of those changes have to happen in a time of um from is i think it's like uh 3.4 billion or something from bacteria to humans all of those changes have to happen uh within roughly three and a half million years and for just 100 changes, it's taking us 18 trillion years to get there, which is that that's part of the thing that I see as absurd is the timelines that are thrown into this. And again, I'm leaving some critical factors out of this. This is assuming you can just jam amino acids together and make it work. There's certainly a lot more detail and finesse to actually putting these together. Um, so this is very generous, and it it just does not seem feasible for the whole picture of evolution. And again, I will give credit where it's due as we're having a discussion. There are things we can observe. I would call that reasonable evolution based on what we can actually see, what we can actually test. And then instead of micro macro evolution, I would call it reasonable and unreasonable evolution. This is an example of what I see as an unreasonable claim of evolution, just in the whole picture. Uh, now, with this being said, I'm going to kind of diverge from uh, evidences. James, what is my time at? I'm at 11 minutes? Holy cow. Uh, well, that took way longer than I expected, so I'm going to turn it over. Oh, uh, okay. Well, then I'll try to jam this into one minute. Um, the, from a theological position, even if evolution is true, um, the whole picture of evolution, including timelines and whatnot, uh even if if evolution is true from a creationist standpoint if we can fit that into the bible which people can make a case for how that can fit into the genesis story i think that is very unlikely but if it does if evolution is true it does not have the ability to remove god from the equation because if we have reasonable evolution stuff we can see and test well god is required to have gotten us to a point of complexity where the evolutionary changes we see can actually happen and if Unreasonable evolution is true, it literally requires a miracle for it to work out. Uh, And I just realized I'm still sharing my screen. I've been talking this whole time, thinking I was looking at the camera. Um, So that is where I am going to leave it, and I will turn it over to Neff. Okay, so great.
4: Thank you. That was a great presentation. Yes, the protein uh, evolution story uh, just is is implausible. Uh, let me get my screen share working here. Let's see here. Um, OK. Now, uh, let's see if I can screen share. Uh, there we go. OK, so uh, evolution is a 19th century myth. Uh, That's based on philosophy and promoted as science. Charles Darwin wrote his book on the origin of species by means of natural selection and/or the preservation of the favored races in the struggle of life in 1859. In 1869, Frederick Meishner, Meisher, a a Swiss uh, biologist and a researcher, discovered the DNA molecule exactly 10 years after Darwin wrote his book. Darwin did not know, and and no scientist knew, in the days of Darwin, of the existence of DNA. It was not known. It was discovered 10 years later. In 19... Forward to 1929, we have J.B.S. Haldane, who put forth the primordial soup theory and was one of the co-founders of the neo-Darwinian Evolution theory. Darwin believed some really weird ideas about evolution because his science was rudimentary in his day. In 1929, uh, J.B.S. Haldane put forth the idea of neo Darwinianism. That is, because it had been discovered since Darwin that DNA is a package of information that prescribes the features of living things. That is, it's an instruction manual for manufacturing the stinger in the tail of a scorpion, the eye of an osprey, the the liver of a a chimpanzee, etc. It is the instruction manual to manufacture and operate those features. It is exactly what the organism is, is the information in the DNA. Because that was discovered by experimentation Evolutionists like Haldane put forth the idea that, well, it must be mutation to DNA that produces evolutionary change. In other words, accruing mutations build the information that builds the features of living things. And so physiological novelties arose in the body plans of living things that turned into, over time, a liver, a kidney, a heart a lung, a leg, a digit, a muscle, a bone. And that's what the evolution theory became because if evolution theory had been true, it would be necessary that random mutations building upon each other cooperatively built the information that specifies new things. Evolution theory is a theory of the arrival of things, you can't have an organism to add the information to make all the features of all the living things and then express them. That's not possible, even under evolution theory. If evolution theory had been true, then genetic mutations would have had to have accrued cooperatively to build the information that specifies new structural designs in biology. New physiological features would arise. Now... So we've gone through Haldane. This idea became known as the new synthesis. The idea that random mutations acted upon by natural selection, selected for by natural selection, is what built all the features of all the living things. J.B.S. Haldane and his kind were the ones who put this idea forth. That was called the new synthesis. It failed. In the 2000s, All the evolutionist scientists have have agreed that the new synthesis has failed. It is not true that random mutations selected by natural selection is the mechanism for, uh, for allegedly for evolutionary change. All major university professors in genetics and biology evolutionists agree. The new synthesis has failed. And so they've come up with what they call the third way. And all the third way is is packaging new ideas like uh, genetic recombination and phenotypic plasticity, the synergetic epistasis, and other other philo- philosophical, non-scientific, philosophically based ideas, added to the evolution to the modern synthesis to try to resurrect the modern synthesis. So, what Darwin said for seventy years was wrong. What Meissner, discovered, was put forth by Burton, uh, Haldane, and his kind, 70 years ago, and it was wrong. And they were telling us it was true for 70 years. Now they've come up with the third way, because the second way didn't work either. So, neo-Darwinianism has failed. The evolutionist scientists of this world, evolutionary biologists agree unanimously Neo-Darwinism failed, and they come up with the third way. So for every time the evolutionary theory comes up against modern science, it fails. And for what they've been telling us all this time was wrong, and they admit it. So they come up with a new model, and it too is a failure. It never was true. Now, one million studies in the observ- observable effects of mutation have been conducted since Haldane's time in the 1930s. A million. If you printed them with a printer and stacked them, they'd be multiple stories tall. Scientists have mutated organisms to numerous generations and observed the effects, and never have they observed cooperative mutations, build genetic information, or cause the arrival of any physiological novelty in any increment in any species It is a myth from the 1930s that mutation is a mechanism for the novel physiological features to arise. And if that didn't happen, doesn't continuously happen, evolution is not true. What modern science has discovered is that DNA is a four-dimensional package of forward and reverse-reading, strand-hopping, highly compressed, overlapping and nested, algorithmically operating, linguistically functional, in from prescriptive functional information. Functional information is a product only of intelligence. It cannot arise from material processes. Algorithms are step-by-step procedures Designed to accomplish a goal, which is uh, conceived beforehand. It requires forward thinking and can only come from minds. DNA operates algorithmically. There are numerous DNA genetic algorithms. From the secular journals, we see this paper, The Linguistics of DNA, Words, Sentences, Grammar, Phonetics, and Semantics, published by uh, Rutgers University. This, it's been known for 15 years that DNA is linguistically, it operates with linguistics, including semiotics. Recently, the uh, Karolinska Institute of, of Sweden discovered that the grammar of the genetic information is more complex than that of any spoken human language. From this paper, the dichotomy in the definition of prescriptive information, this, the scientists admit, genetic information operates linguistically and algorithmically this is only one of numerous science papers it's now become norm prescriptive information it's understood and it's not argued against nobody argues that it's not true the dna operates linguistically and algorithmically this this paper published in 2000 uh, what 12 or 16 2005 states genetic algorithms instruct sophisticated biological organization that's the first line in the abstract uh, genetic algorithm I'm sorry one minute left genetic algorithms instruct sophisticated biological organization if that's true evolution cannot be true because algorithms functional information and linguistics are products only of minds they require forward thinking. They cannot be produced by material processes. Therefore, evolution theory is philosophy. It cannot be true. Because science has verified it cannot be true. These projects are only produced by minds. And from this paper, biological organisms uh, are considered to be controlled and regulated by functional information, which... Functional information comes closer to expressing the intuitive and semantic sense of the word information than mere Shannon combination, uh, combinatorial uh, uncertainty and reduced uncertainty. The innumerable attempts that have been made to reduce the functional information of genomics to molecular biology to more nothing more than physiological combinatorics and, uh, will and, fail for reasons uh, best summarized mm-hmm. in the peer-reviewed paper. So... In other words, all all theories of evolution that nature has produced this information will fail.
1: Thank you for those opening statements from both Nephilim-free and Benjamin, and very excited to kick it over to Erica, YouTube's favorite daughter, as well as reason to doubt, Jordan. Want to let you know, first though, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics, and we hope you feel welcome no matter what walk of life you are from. And so with that, thanks so much for being with us, Erica and Reason to Doubt. The floor is all yours.
2: And I'm going to be starting, and I'm going to be sharing my screen, starting now-ish. You see it? Yep. Awesome. Well, my name is Jordan, and today I'm going to be talking about evolution versus creation or intelligent design. Now, I'm aware that this isn't a dichotomy. Evolution being false doesn't mean that design by deity is true and vice versa. But since these two options represent the opinions of everyone involved today, we'll just pretend that those are the only two options. And before I dive in, a disclaimer. I am an engineer. I am not a biologist. Evolution is nowhere remotely close to my expertise. I try to get my biology from biologists, and you should all do the same. If I mess something up or get something wrong, assume it's because I'm an idiot, and not because actual scientists don't know the answer. But being an engineer gives me some insight into design. Designing solutions to problems is literally an engineer's job. Since the creationist wants to assert that there's a sort of divine engineer, let's see if that matches up with what we know about design. Now, as with all good engineering discussions, we need to first start with some assumptions. First, I'm assuming this divine engineer is vastly more intelligent and powerful than humans and is generally competent. Any being sufficiently advanced to design all life should be sufficiently advanced to do a good job at it. Relatedly, I'm assuming the designer does not have any meaningful constraints in terms of materials or whatever. They can mix, match, add things, whatever. Next, all design is goal-oriented. What may be sloppy design for one goal may be a uh, great design for another. Unfortunately... This is part of where creationism fails the scientific. The creator is ill-defined with features and goals that are not really nailed down. For today's purposes, though, I have to assume something. So I'll assume that at a minimum, the divine engineer has the goal of creating self-replicating life, including at least some intelligent life. So with this in mind, I think it's fair to say that we can look at our two models as being between intelligent design, where we'd expect good design, and evolution, where we'd expect good enough design. But what is good design anyway? Well, there are tons of design philosophies, but that just about any engineer you ask will agree that good designs have at least three things in common. They're simple, which means the opposite of complicated. Sometimes complication is unavoidable, but simpler is better. They're also efficient, meaning they don't expend resources that aren't necessary to accomplish a goal. And lastly, they actually accomplish the goal that they set out to accomplish. Now, applying this to our two models, we should expect a divine engineer would make things more like the light switch. It's a good design. It's simple and efficient. You flip the switch, boom, the light is on. Evolution, on the other hand, will sometimes get a light switch, but other times it'll just be good enough, engineering like what you see on the right. It does get the light bulb turned on, but it's needlessly complicated and hopelessly inefficient. Sometimes evolution will work that way. So let's look at a few examples of these principles in action. And we're going to start this with this adorable little fuzzball, the golden mole. This guy isn't actually a mole. He's not in the family of true moles. But we won't hold that against him. Now, golden moles live in sub-Saharan Africa, and they mostly eat bugs. This cute little face uh, might be hiding something. You might notice it's odd. There's no eyes. The eyes are still there, but they're completely covered by skin and fur. They still work. The moles can detect light and dark with them, but they're definitely hampered by being covered up. So are these a good design? Clearly not. They're not simple. While the eyes are functional, they're way more complicated than they need to be. Simple amoeba and such have light-sensitive patches that can fulfill the same function of detecting light and dark, but they're not nearly that complicated. Uh, These eyes are also criminally over-designed in their present state. Building out a fully functional eye and then immediately covering it up with fur, that kind of waste would get any engineer fired. This doesn't fit with a sort of divine intelligence, but it fits evolution perfectly. The golden mole's ancestors had eyes that were fully functioning, but they weren't necessary in their subterranean lifestyle. Being covered by skin and fur made them less susceptible to injury, etc. And that's, you know, thus the golden mole was born. So now let's go under the sea. Some mammals, such as dolphins and whales, live their entire lives in the water, yet they must still breathe air that requires them to come to the surface periodically to suck in a giant gulp of air before they submerge again. Suffocation is a real issue for these mammals, particularly newborn calves. Uh, If they never make it to the surface, they suffocate and die. Now, this is arguably a straight-up design flaw. The problem of requiring an exchange of gases while underwater has already been solved because gills exist. Even if the designer had a very good reason for some reason wanting aquatic animals to have lungs, that wouldn't preclude gills as well particularly for newborns. Other animals have used precisely that solution. Of course, this makes perfect sense as a good enough design. The ancestors of these creatures didn't have gills, so they don't either. That wouldn't be an obstacle for a divine engineer, though. Nothing would stop this divine engineer from just grabbing a good solution that he already had made from a completely different animal and slapping it onto a whale. But evolution can't do that, and that's why we don't see it. Now, finally, I'll end with a crowd favorite, the recurrent laryngeal nerve. This is the nerve that branches from the vagus nerve that goes from your brain all the way down in your chest. The RLN's primary job is to innervate the larynx, but and that's all the way up in your throat. To get back there, it loops under the aortic arch, then goes all the way back up your neck, making that trip way longer than it needs to, ha- than it needs to be. Now, as bad as that is in humans, the problem is blown to laughable proportions in giraffes. Their RLN does exactly the same thing, except it turns a trip that could have been a few centimeters into a trip of, trip of several meters. Now, it's easy to see this is not good design. It is far from simple. The RLN does have valuable functions all the way down there in the chest, but those functions could have easily been done by another nerve. It is obviously grossly inefficient. If that nerve has to get to the larynx, I mean, just do it on the way down. You know, like you're right there. Uh, The reason that this happens in reality is it has to do with our evolutionary history. and our distant ancestors, the heart was very close to the origin of the nerve, so a small loop around it wasn't a big deal. Over time, though, the distance got stretched out and stretched out and stretched out, leading to the hopeless mess we have today. Uh, This is the epitome of good enough engineering. Now, the list could go on and on from vestigial limbs, mammalian yolk sacs, to vitamin C deficiencies and primates, et cetera, et cetera, but there can be little doubt that reality appears to be full of good enough design. Now, this doesn't mean that it wasn't designed at all. Maybe the intelligent being designed, you know, like intelligent beings designed suboptimally. There are suboptimal designs made by intelligence. Uh, perhaps the designer of us was incompetent or malicious or just lazy. Uh, all of those things are possible, but at the very least, that puts it puts a significant constraint on what the designer could be like. And um, It ends up getting to be so many constraints that it looks like it's impossible to distinguish from no designer at all. And if we don't need a designer to explain what we see, then why not make our model simpler and just cut it out? Our design doesn't need that feature. And that's me, and I'll turn it over to my partner.
5: All right, can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Okay, cool, let me share my screen. I apologize if my voice gives out or anything like that today. I'm a little bit sick, I've got a bit of a cold. Um, Can you guys see this? Yes. All right, Uh, James, how much time do I have? Could you tell me that?
1: You have nine minutes and 47 seconds.
5: Very cool. Okay. All right, I'll go ahead and start. Okay, my name's Erica. That's a gibbon. I'm here with Jordan to discuss evolution and its robusticity. Um, I am currently a PhD student in biological anthropology, so I study human evolution and primate evolution uh, at the graduate level. I got my master's degree in primatology, so this is going to be fairly primate-centric. Now, as a preface, very quickly, this is a discussion that is for fun. Um, In the broader world, this is not up for debate. We're discussing how cool evolution is or, you know, maybe potential areas where it could be doing better. But evolution is more accepted than ever, not just in the scientific community, but also at large. Um, As of right now, only 18% of of people, people in the United States accept young earth creationism or that evolution doesn't actually occur. But evolutionary theory is, you know, it's been argued by many that it's actually one of the most robust theories in science period. Now, it's supported by every relevant field, I feel comfortable saying that, but particularly what I'm going to be going over here is statistics, genetics, and paleontology slash geology. Now, evolution makes a couple of very simple predictions, and as we all know, predictions are the gold standard of science. So within statistics, evolution predicts that all organisms should converge on a common ancestor. Within genetics, evolution predicts that more related organisms should share more genetically than less related organisms. And in paleontology and geology, evolution predicts simply that the fossil record should display slow morphologic change over geologic time in response to changes in the environment. So the first thing I want to bring up is this excellent paper from 2016 titled Statistical Evidence for Common Ancestry, Application to Primates. Now, what these guys did is really cool. They essentially took uh, a couple different lines of evidence, morphology of living and extinct primates, uh, genetics. So they, they examined about 54 genes across about 180 different species of primates. And then they looked at biogeographical evidence. And they wanted to test common ancestry against species-separate ancestries. So someone created all the different species of primates separately and family-separate ancestries. So someone created all the different families of primates separately. And uh, this is taken from their discussion Every test of species separate ancestry that we applied to the primates suggested that this model does a very poor job of explaining actual biological data as compared to common ancestry. Many of these data sets reject species separate ancestry strongly. The probability of obtaining a test statistic more extreme than the one observed under species separate ancestry model being incredibly small, often approaching or greatly exceeding the probability of picking a correct atom at random among the estimated 10 to the 80th atoms in the known universe. This uniform and strong signal arises in part due to the large number of primate species for which data are available. So they effectively found that there is no way, mathematically speaking, that you can explain the data set that we see in the morphology, uh, biogeography, and genetics of all primates, including humans, of course, us being great apes or hominoids, um, by appealing to separate ancestry, it's simply not going to work. And to uh, go back again, you should be able to recognize that by looking at these infinitesimal p-values here over to the right. I mean, we're at seven times ten to the you know negative one thousand seven hundred ninety-first. This is some pretty intense stuff. But genetics are important in more ways than just um, than just our similarity to the other pennons and the rest of the hom- or to the panins and the rest of the hominoids. Although that is important. When referring to the entire genome, we are, of course, 96% similar to humans, or humans are 96% similar, excuse me, to chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, And when we refer to just coding base pairs, this number rises to 98.8% similar. Okay, cool. We all know that. Uh, But evolution makes this prediction that in accordance with it, humans and chimps should share progressively less in common genetically with organisms outside the primate order, then the mammalian class, then the animal kingdom, respectively. Um, And this is important because humans are of course most closely related to chimps, but they are actually uh, most closely related to us as well. They share more genetically when looking at a full genome comparison with humans than they do to gorillas. So this is quite interesting. And this is of course uh, confirmed when we look at organisms and their protein sequences. This is called beyond reasonable doubt evolution from DNA sequences. We demonstrate quantitatively Sorry, let me move this out of the way. That, as predicted by evolutionary theory, sequences of homologous proteins from different species converge as we go further back in time. The converse, a non-evolutionary model, can be expressed as probabilities and the test works for chloroplast nuclear and mitochondrial sequences, as well as for sequences that diverged at different time depths. Even on our conservative test, the probability that, the, that chance could produce the observed level of ancestral convergence for just one of the eight data sets of 51 proteins is 1 times 10 raised negative 19. And combined over eight data sets is 1 times 10 raise native 132. So once again, there is no way to look at the data set of life, the biodiversity that we see today, and come to the conclusion that these organisms are not all related to one another. Uh, And if the creationist wants to draw a line somewhere and say, well, some organisms are related and others are not, then they have to present where that line is drawn and why it is drawn there. So statistics demonstrate that only common ancestry explains the patterns we see in biology. Can mutation really cause such massive change? The answer is yes. Human-specific RGAP-11b increases size and folding of primate neocortex in the fetal marmoset. So what these guys did here in this paper that I'm about to go over is they looked at humans and they said humans have a, a partial duplication of this special gene called RGAP-11a. All primates have RGAP-11a, Only humans have a partial duplication of it that results in RGAP11b. And what this gene does is it helps send a bunch of extra neurons, um, stem cells, uh, actually that go and become neurons during development. So they said, well, what if we take the human gene and we stick it in a marmoset, which is a new world monkey? And this is what they found. The marmoset's brain increased in surface area by three times. So small genetic changes can lead to big phenotypic outcomes that can then be selected for within an environment. Uh, but we can also see this with entire proteins. The de novo uh, gene evolution of the antifreeze glycoproteins in codfishes revealed by whole genome sequence data. So this codfish actually has a brand new protein in it that allows it to swim in colder waters without its blood freezing. But paleontology and geology additionally corroborate the ideas of evolutionary theory, and they do so in a beautiful way. We know the earth is very ancient. This is because of the radioactive decay law, which is just a law in physics. This is There's no getting around that. Um, and in fact, two hundred and fifty seven billion dollar industries depend on this fact, because all of the fossil fuel industry and energy energy industry depends on radiometric dating to do basin modeling and actually find fossil fuels. Um, this is something you can find on most of their websites, interestingly enough.
1: So up, does two evo- minutes and forty five seconds.
5: OK, cool. Thank you, James. So does evolution actually pan out here? Do we see slow morphologic change or organisms changing over geologic time as evolution would predict? Uh, And the answer is a resounding yes. I work with hominins specifically. So here are uh, roughly 10 hominins, right? And what we see is slow morphologic change over geologic time from the size of the brow ridge to the dentition to the palate. Uh, to the brain case size, to the size of the orbits, and if you saw the postcrania, you would see the emergence of bipedality and associated features slowly emerging there as well, from the less bipedally efficient Ardipithecus ramidus or Australopithecus afarensis to the incredibly efficient bipeds in late genus Homo. Um, And another good example is looking at the involucrum in whale evolution. So this little critter up there at the top is called Indohyus. Indohyus has a little bone in its ear, a little structure in its inner ear called the involucrum. Now, Indohyus is just a little hoofed land mammal. That's it. Um, And it's the only hoofed land mammal that we know of that has an involucrum. Coincidentally, in the same place that Indohyus lives, if you go forward in geologic time, you will start to see the emergence of more aquatic artiodactyl animals, things like ambulocetus, pachycetus, and eventually you end up with cetaceans, uh, that is to say whales. So why is this important? Because Indohyus is a land animal and it has an involucrum, and all living cetaceans have involucrums and no land animals do today. Interestingly enough, all living land or all living whales today also have what's called a um, an, uh, astragalus, a, a double spooled knee, which or ankle rather, which is a structure that is exclusive to artiodactyls or even-toed ungulates today, like for instance deer. Paleontologic change is also recapitulated in development, which is very interesting. We have tracked the evolution of the inner ear bones, which animals they emerge in uh, the paleo- or in the fossil record, which animals rather that they emerge in within the fossil record and how they migrate about. And it turns out that if you look at the development of a marsupial called the rat kangaroo, you see this exact evolution that we've witnessed in the fossil record occurring in real time. And there's an MRI, I think that's an MRI over there to the right showing it which is very cool. So there's like a little comparison. So evolutionary theory is remarkably robust. It impacts the modern world in a myriad of ways from our agriculture to our medicine. And it has withstood decades upon decades of scrutiny. The only holdouts, at least in my opinion, seem to be those with a particular religious motivation. And even those are dwindling. So I am ready to talk about this. I have quite a bit to say, um, and uh, thank you.
1: You got it. Thank you very much, Erica. And wanna let you know, folks, Couple of things. We are absolutely thrilled. If you have not heard, folks, at Modern Day Debate, for the first time ever, we are absolutely thrilled that, as you can see at the bottom right of your screen, for the first time ever, we are launching our own debate conference called DebateCon. It is going to be in Dallas, Texas, this January 15th. That's a Saturday, as well as the 16th, two-day conference, full of debates, so keep an eye out for that. We are absolutely thrilled as we are talking to some really, really gifted debaters, very skilled, and so we are excited about that. Hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, as you don't want to miss that big event, as we're going to be live streaming during that conference for many of the debates. So with that, we are going to kick it into open conversation mode. Thank you so much, Erica Jordan, Benjamin, and Nephilim Free. The floor is all yours.
5: Yeah, who wants to get started? Um I have I have a brief thought I'd like to to punt Benjamin's way, because I know he put a lot of work into the uh into the, the simulation that you were running in, in PowerPoint. Um, but I think I saw some problems with it that I want to express, if that's all right. Uh the first and the biggest is that you're not accounting for selection at all. Selection is the biggest, the most important player in evolution, right? It is the it, I mean, it's called natural selection. It is what is actually honing the raw material of these mutations when they appear. And it can either speed up or slow down how fast something moves to... That's
4: the modern synthesis, systems. right?
5: Um, no, 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 no. Darwin Darwin confirmed natural selection. Natural selection is just one of the four... No, reasons. I didn't
4: say natural selection. I said modern synthesis.
5: Yeah, I'm just talking about natural selection. I'm just saying you have to account for selection if you're going to run any kind of how... how it, if you're trying to... If you're trying to model how a mutation is going to move to fixation and how long it will take or uh, different issues with it, you have to account for selection. That's like the well, most important thing. Well, I, I just
4: think. pointed out that the modern uh, modern synthesis failed, and evolutionists, biologists all agree on that.
0: Yeah. So is that what you're
4: important. positing? Uh, so, modern-
0: may I, I apologize. May I uh, jump in since Eric asked? Yeah, Erica added yeah oh, please, please. take it over. To me. Um, so, how in the selection? If we're taking that into consideration, how does it know what to select to get us from the bacteria to the human? How does it know what to do?
5: It doesn't. There's nothing directional at all about evolution.
0: Right. So then the word selection is kind of, it 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 doesn't make any sense to say selection because really it's it's up to chance. And so that's what I base my model on. If we're going off of raw chance with no mind and no nothing intervening, if it's yeah. truly random...
5: No, it's, it's not up to chance either. There's just because there's no directionality to it doesn't mean that there is, it's complete chaos, right? It's what's actually doing the selecting is the environment that the organism is in, right? So um, a great example of this is when you look at bacteria that becomes resistant to disease, right? uh, uh, Or resistant to disease, excuse me, to um, antibiotics. So if you have a disease, if you have an antibiotic resistant bacteria and you put it back into the original environment where there is no antibiotic present, it will actually be outcompeted by the regular bacteria that aren't resistant, right? So evolution is context specific. What is fit in one environment may not be fit in another one, which is why you have to include selection anytime you model any kind of mutation, because that's what's driving you know, how an organism is going to respond and change.
0: Um, So I don't think that that's a a parallel, a a proper parallel example, because that's still comparing two bacteria. what I would need to see is a bacteria changing into whatever it is, it's evolving into and then changing back. And I know that we get into some timeframe issues with that, but the reason I bring that up is because from a creationist standpoint, if the bacteria is already there, God designed it a certain way, then there, that, there's nothing wrong with saying that the bacteria is able to change to do this and then it can be out-competed by the other ones because it's already there. What yeah. I'm questioning is how did it all, get to that?
5: All, I'm, all I was trying to explain with the example with the bacteria is that you didn't include selection in your simulation, that you have to include selection. You also had a constant um, mutation rate, which mutation rates aren't constant, and you used modern bacteria conditions. I'm just looking at my notes over here. Use yeah. modern bacteria conditions, which are also, which is also not particularly apt. The, the prebiotic world is incredibly different in, in numerous different ways, at least from what we can glean from things like stabilize or not stable isotopes, but, um, no, yeah, stable isotopes, things like that, um, to, to glean what this environment actually looked like and the, things like the temperature and the oxygen content and in the atmosphere and, of this nature so you have to you it's i wish it were that simple like it would be really nice if you could just like run a simulation like that i do mean that sincerely It would make everybody's job a lot easier um but but life is simply too complex um whether you're starting at the beginning when it's it's at its most simple or uh dialing it up to 11 and and doing it with with extant organisms but you have to you have to account for selections is my point
0: yeah well if we want to move on, we can, but again, that word selection seems deceiving because by selection, mean we have to leave it up to chance. And that's what I base that off of, because again, what is deciding how it selects? If we've already got an existing bacteria that can adapt and unadapt, and I'm not saying adapt in place of Evolution, well, that's fine. That doesn't contradict anything. What I'm saying is how does it know to evolve into
2: something else? And then why? Yeah, how would it know to can, de- evolve yeah, into
0: something else? Can I
2: try as like right, the layman's yeah. perspective? Maybe, yeah, please, maybe please the please. idiot's perspective will help. So um, the, the thing you have to remember with evolution is that there's not a dichotomy between someone choosing something, intentionality, and randomness. Those two things are, are not an either or a Boolean. Okay, so you can have something that is not random, but is not intelligently directed. For example, imagine we lived in a world where uh, five meters above or that's one one and a half meters above the ground. There was a poison gas that would immediately kill anyone who touched it. Anyone who evolved, who mutated in such a way that they grew to a height of one point five one meters would die. And that gene would never be passed on. There so would what, be a selection. What scientific now, example. Please don't interrupt me.
4: Philosophy.
2: Please don't interrupt me. You can you can talk when I'm done. So uh anyone who touched that gas would die. And therefore that gene would never get into the population. There's no intelligence involved, but it would be selected for, if that makes sense. I hope that clears it up.
0: Well, so I I for me that seems to pose an, another big issue because. There is intelligence evolved. The intelligence is already in, if we're talking about a human, the human who is changing and size intelligence is in their DNA. So my question isn't, and that would seem more like a morphological change to me. If we're just talking about a human, one's taller and so it dies. And so through natural selection, you can have morphological changes. My question is, how did we get from the bacteria by chance to the human based on the numbers
2: that I gave? Well, you keep saying by chance. It's not by chance. So there's a random element so mutations are happening, and that has an element of randomness. And then which mm-hmm. mutations survive is non-random. The environment will decide, decide, being just a convenient way of language to say it, there's no intelligence, but the environment will dictate who survives because some creatures will be better able to compete and get resources and pass on their genes. There's no intelligence involved. It's just, it's a brutal world out there. And there's if there was unlimited resources, natural selection wouldn't work. But because we live in a world with that with limited resources, it does.
5: Suppose Surely. you did, suppose you'd use okay. like, like, here's a so super, what, what? super simple answer. I, I'm sorry enough. It, can I say one thing and then you can go? I'll be really quick. Okay. Yeah, cool, so cool. so let's say I, I go out onto the beach and I build two houses, right? I build a, a house out of straw and a house out of stone. And then I leave, right? And a hurricane hits. The house, has, the house that's made out of straw is going to be blown over, right? The house made out of stone is less likely to be blown over. Now, the, we're just using inanimate objects. We're not even appealing to anything like that involves inheritance or organisms and how they reproduce. We're just solely talking about how the environment impacts a thing. In this case, that thing is the house, right? So is the environment or is the is the storm intelligent because it's selecting against the straw house? It's well, just doing what
4: it so, does. It's that, just So, doing- so, so what yeah. we're hearing is a, a lot of philosophical ideas and you'll see that their examples are based on, uh, uh you know, uh, ideas and they want you to see this. And it's like, um, a card trick see this this i'm talking about something not biological therefore it happens biological see see we already, so, we already tried so biological instead about. of biological examples they're telling you their stories and their philosophy because evolution is not science it's philosophy when it comes to when uh, it comes to the situate, biology? excuse me you you want me to not talk over you uh, oh, that's so, true. that's true. So, when it comes to things like citrate uh, utilization, the evolutionists, this is the only argument they really have for evolution. If evolution were true, evolution had to produce uh, cooperative mutations. Had to build the information that builds f- uh, physiological novelties in the body plans of living things. Else, the land-dwelling creature never rises from the fish. The bird never arises from the land-dwelling creature, and et cetera, Okay, evolutionists never offer arguments about that because they can't. And, oh, and all you guys are repeating is the, is is uh, is neo-Darwinianism that failed.
5: Now, if you've it been Failed. For a hot you minute,
4: evolutionist, evolutionist biologists agree that neo-Darwinianism has failed, and that's why they offer what they call the third way, which right. includes ideas like phenotypic plasticity and and uh, you know synergistic epistasis and whatnot. When it comes to citrate, for example, you offer this kind of idea as evidence of evolution. But the truth is, what's been discovered is that the bacteria already have the ability to produce the citrate. Utilization. The gene is simply turned off. A mutation, a change, uh, uh, not not necessarily a random one, but uh, an inbuilt change uh, based on the code, coding of the information in the bacteria. Now if I turns say on it's, a it's, gene.
5: Excuse
4: me. Excuse me.
5: You've going for a hot minute.
4: Excuse me. Turns Netflix turns Netflix on free, the, the gene. Free, which, I, which, me.
1: So, uh, is, if you can both give me a second, <sighs> just a, just there are a number of points that you made, Neff. So we do want to wrap it up right here might be a good upper all right <laughs> is left. so we are going to just readjust the screen here uh what we are going to do as well is remind you folks a couple of things one as mentioned we are absolutely thrilled for debate con coming up in the future so subscribe for that as i'm going to flip on that subscribers only chat in just a moment in case you didn't get that Quick reminder at the start, letting you know to subscribe as we have some really epic debates being lined up for this conference that's going to be in person in Dallas, Texas, in January. Also, want to let you know all of our guests are linked in the description. We really do appreciate our guests, even when they leave. So we do want to say even Neff is linked down there. And I have a feeling you'll be streaming soon because he's probably angry. But we nonetheless we do love all of our guests, and we do want to let you know, as always, folks. We really do appreciate you no matter what walk of life you are from, whether you be Christian, atheist, you name it. We are really glad to have you here as we are a neutral platform trying to give everybody their chance to make their case on a level playing field. And actually, you maybe you didn't even notice. You maybe thought, wait, Neff didn't leave. He's still there in the corner and he's been standing incredibly still this whole time that's actually not Nephilim free. That's a photo of him. All right. Okay. All right. So let I just quick make one last adjustment and get Jordan back in here in terms of the pictures on screen and we'll kick it right back into open discussion. So I think Erica, you had a point you wanted to make, and then we'll kick it over to Ben just to be sure that he gets plenty of time to respond as well, given that
5: he's outnumbered. Yeah. I don't want Ben to feel like he's you know, it's a 2v1 here. I mean,
1: I know that's not what he signed up for. One, oh, wait, um, wait. Hold on. Oh. To be fair, just in case that wasn't an accident, Neff is trying to get back in. So if that was an accident and if he just accidentally clicked the button or something, uh, I do want to give him a chance.
5: Yeah.
1: No, I mean, it could have been an accident for sure. Well, dodged. <laughs> Nephilim free. Nephilim free. Yeah, I, I just
5: want to
4: say one thing.
1: No. I'll never, I'll, I'll never I again that. You know, I'm just going to say, it, I, I don't think... Okay, so if you left... We're not letting you, if you purposely left, we're not letting you back in because we are, I'm tired of people rage quitting. We've had it happen like four times in the last month and we need more out of people than them cutting out. And so I've got to tell you, Neff, if you left on purpose, I, I'm i not going to hear you now give a mouthful to why I'm unfair or whatever else. Did you leave on purpose, Neff? I'm asking you to unmute. I'm giving you a fair shot. Oh, okay. Well, there he goes. So what we are going to do is What's back into open Fine. dialogue. I have a feeling he left on purpose cause he just left again. So can, uh,
2: since I'm not familiar with, uh, you bet, is it Ben? Do you want us to call us Ben or Benjamin? Would you, would it you doesn't remember? matter to me? <laughs> All right, Ben. So, uh, what, what exactly, because you said during your opening that you don't think that it's evolution is necessarily in its entirety impossible or um, unreasonable. So I'm curious if you could describe real quick, like, what is your position with regards to evolution?
0: Well, I'm pretty open about the fact that uh, from a nuanced standpoint, I'm a layman. As far as evolution goes, I don't have any background in it. Um, but just in, uh, like in the general conversation we were having earlier, there's little things that I pick up on that seem logically inconsistent or seem to be either unreasonable or a contradiction or some things are just a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I would, I cannot say I won't ever hold this position, but right now I don't hold the position that evolution in its whole theory is impossible. But from some things I've, I see, such as what we've been talking about, I think there are some aspects that are very unreasonable.
5: Would you, would you take the position then maybe that, like, are you more of the school that there's an intelligent agent who is guiding it to its current position to all of life? Or are you more of like the de novo out of nothing creationist or like, wh- how, how would you characterize your position if you don't mind me asking?
0: No, that's fine. I'm here about, um, to answer questions. Uh, I am a, I'm a young earth creationist, so it would, it would be out of nothing. Yeah, um, so- Now, that being said, I I don't think we can just throw out the baby with the bathwater with every concept of evolution because we can watch certain things happen. The gray area for me, and my line is a squiggly line, so I can't give you a clear line. Um, Mostly because, again, I'm not studied in evolution. I don't know the nuances. Um, But my line, again, goes back to the logic and the reason of what's being presented to me and what are some issues that we point out, such as... Um, And I actually wrote one down. I'd like to go back to Jordan on. Uh, But there's just some issues that make the whole picture of what's being claimed in the evolutionary theory just unattainable, um, just from from how the world is. And and there seems to be a lot of assumptions pushed into evolution. Um, And sometimes assumptions are necessary to to actually flesh out a, a theory Uh, But assumptions are something that I struggle with. So I try my best to really uh, finesse out the details if possible.
2: Okay. So I used to be a young earth creationist. So you're not like I I empathize with your position. And I did want to say that um, I totally agree that accepting evolution does not necessarily mean you have to reject God. There are tons of Christians who accept both. So Mm -hmm. I agree with you there. Um, I can hit the assumption thing, but you said there was something you wanted to kick over to me yeah uh, since so you're before, alone I, I want to give you as much agency as possible Thanks I'm gonna need it um, let's see oh
0: it, this is actually going back to kind of the original point we were talking about before Nathan and Erica uh, were talking you you know you had given me the analogy of that based on the environmental conditions and how those affect uh, a certain, thing. that That's what decides to natural selection, what progresses and what doesn't. But what I am saying in the model that I built, and it's not a perfect model, but in the model that I built is for the thing that the environment is going to weed out to even have happened, is that unlikely? So for the environment to have something to weed out, is that unreasonable? So I'm not arguing that once it's there, it can be weeded out. It's is it feasible for it to get there within reason?
2: Okay. So thanks for clarifying that. All right. Um, So selection still plays a role even in that sort of thing, because what your model is basically testing is if we started from nothing and had to leap to a certain point, could we do it with random mutation? And I totally agree. There's no way that we're going to go from, literally nothing to a sequence of 80 amino acids in one go. Like that's not going to happen, right? Or, or at least, well, I don't think it is. Maybe Dan will tell me I'm wrong. But that seems unlikely to me too. Uh, but we don't do that. It, there's no single leap. It's a bunch of little leaps building off of each other. And so you don't need to go from zero to 80 in one jump. You can go from zero to, to, to two and a zero to three, and then from three to five and then five to eight. You know, you can, you can build over time to these larger structures. So that's why we don't see like in, in the fossil record or whatever, we don't see nothing, nothing, nothing humans. Like that's not, that's what we would expect if it was just out of nothing created, right? But that's not what we see. What we see is nothing, 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 then a little thing, some simple things building up to more and more and more complex things. So it seems to me, given what we observe, um, we're going from simple structures to more complex structures over geological time that seems to fit the the model that we're proposing. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I, same with um, geology. Uh, I don't. I guess that falls into geology. The the geologic column and how everything falls into that. I'm not going to go down a, um, a Noah's flood. You know, try and rationale for that. Maybe that's the case. Um, but again, I'm a layman on that as well. Uh, but again, if we're talking about and I know that Neff's touched on this in a lot of his debates as well. So I'm going to go down the trail too. If we're talking about morphological changes, we see that. We can easily see that. And so this is, again, me being I possibly a bit too strict, but that's the position I'm holding because I'm right now trying to tease out all the nuance. We don't see any substantial beneficial anatomic changes that are actually progressing something from one thing to another thing.
5: So live, I
0: mean,
5: live. Me, yeah, I think that I think that that tends to be a bit of a misconception, right? Like a thing doesn't become a new thing, right? It just it changes in accordance with the environment that it's in. And that means the existing structures that are already present are what's actually subject to that change. It's pretty rare that you're going to all of a sudden out of the blue de novo get a brand new uh, structure, right? It, that's not to say that it can't happen. Um, the 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 example that I used in my presentation with the, the de novo protein uh, that's an antifreeze protein for these ice fish that live in these colder environments, right? Having that mutation that allows their blood to, to keep from freezing opened up a brand new. Area for them to basically exploit. They could go farther north without worrying about dying, right, in these colder conditions, uh, and exploit the resources that were there. So that's huge for the fitness of these guys, as far as reproduction and, and passing that gene then on to to their descendants, right? Um, but like, you're not going to get as as Jordan said, it's not going to be nothing, nothing, nothing human, or you're going to have you know ambiguous ape creature human. Right, there are all of these intermediary steps that occur, you know, in in the midst of this of this grand transition, if you will, and it's that gradient of change that we kind of refer to when we're talking about evolution. And when we see it in the fossil record, it seems much more drastic than it is today because we're getting pieces of the pie every million years, or three million years, or five million years. Whereas today, we see organisms every day, every hour, every minute. Um, and so we don't tend to see this nice truncated, easy way of of um, of clocking how these organisms are changing on the in the grand scheme of things.
0: Yeah, um, I think the trouble that I have with all of this again is it's the chain of evolution. So even if we're going from one organism to another, I'm not actually sure that that would make things simpler because every every new um, I don't think it's called morphology. Every new Uh, species, every new creature, would be another bottleneck where we'd have to explain how it got a little bit further. And so we can see creature A and creature B, they look similar. And again, I know that this is um, a redundant thing people try to take too far, but then it's like, well, show us the 50 in between those. Um, But again, we don't have the 50 between those. So we can make an assumption um, I'm certainly not saying it's impossible that that's what's happened. But again, because we're going off of an assumption off of what we can see, it does still seem unlikely. And I do think that the equation that I used, um, it was a very generous equation, uh, especially because I would imagine if you go that far back, you'd have a far lower amount of bacteria. And the, uh, I think I saw that the reproduction rate of bacteria is somewhere between like 3 and 15 minutes uh, per bacteria. So I, I went with a higher reproduction rate. Um, and I, I left out some really complex things. So that is just to say, regardless of the species that are in between, I'm just talking about whether it was through five five different transitional things or 5,000 different transitional things, the odds of the DNA, uh, the odds of the amino acids within whatever that is getting from point A to point B through that means is still incredibly unlikely.
2: So another thing to remember when we're um, talking about these population genetics is it's not like we need to um, the whole population is trying to do one thing and we need to wait until that thing is successful. Okay. We got that step. Now let's move on to the next step. It's a massive machine of parallel processing. So we're throwing it's, I don't know if you've ever done any uh, Monte Carlo methods or maybe numerical methods. It's kind of like that where we're just throwing uh, mutation after mutation after mutation over this whole population, and so we are selecting f- simultaneously for all of these different um, new features all the time. So every new generation is selecting simultaneously for all of these features. So that's why it works. If they were trying to work together in series, it, it wouldn't work. Well, the only see, so yeah, I tried to account for that too because, like I said, the number of
0: bacteria that I was accounting for reproducing perfectly each time was as I think five decillion or five undecillion, which is an incredible amount of organisms. So even with that many reproducing every single time, um, I still couldn't get there.
2: Okay. With, so with the math. your, your model was went, went sharply nonlinear, right? So it was a sharply nonlinear model, right? Um, and that's because you were trying to do jumps from a very small number to a very large number. And, but if you broke it into smaller pieces, so like say we go from zero to five. Zero to five is beneficial. Boom, that's locked in. We don't need to do that ever again. It's already there. We've done it. And mm-hmm. then we can go to the next five. And once we do that, we don't ever need to do it again. We've done it. And so you wouldn't get into this massive exponential curve where you're going from zero to 80, because you're never going to make that zero to 80 jump. That, that's why it works. If you couldn't do mm-hmm. that, if you couldn't build beast by piece, then evolution wouldn't work at all. Um, the only reason it works is because you can go iteration by iteration.
5: Well, and to Jordan's point, to just add on to that, right, a lot of the structures that we have today, again, they're, once you reach multicellularity and you, you get into organisms that are are more complex, this gets a lot easier because you've got all of the basic building blocks already in place. Um, and then it just becomes, you know, almost trivial to get digits from a fin, right? It's It's basically just hawks playing around with hawks genes for a little while and, and, uh, expressing them for longer and different periods. Um, but what Jordan said too, is that, or what he kind of alluded to that's quite important is the fact that yes, once you have a step that's done, it's locked in, you you don't have to do it anymore. And you also don't have to take it literally one step at a time. Some mutations, uh, contrary to kind of, you know, what our earlier guest was saying, they can work in conjunction with one another. Precursor mutations, for instance, right? Where one is on, right? You, you have the a mutation present and it doesn't really activate quote unquote to use like colloquial language unless it's in the presence of another mutation, right? And then when they're both together something really incredible happens, right? And you might get a, a brand new protein or something along those lines, right? Um, so you can get, you know, these little leaps and hops that occur. And then once they're there, you know, you're golden. You don't have to re-evolve it a second time. Um, so I, I I think you would you say that maybe your your problem isn't so much with evolution and it's it's more with abiogenesis, it's more with getting life from non-life. That's kind of the vibe that I'm getting from you.
0: Yeah, that's um that takes me more to the impossibility more than unreasonable. I, I specifically wanted to avoid abiogenesis, which is why I tried to do sure, the progression yeah. from bacteria to um to human.
2: And Uh, I have to say, I totally respect, like, most people won't make that distinction. So the fact you did is super kudos, like, yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, Gosh, I'm trying to think. I I had a a
0: point and then um, I derailed myself there with that. But going back to the Hawks genes, um, again, where do we see that we can do that now? Because if we can't actually demonstrate that with, with anything really empirical, then it is an assumption based off of, sure, we're looking at the geologic column, we're looking at the fossil record, we're assuming that's what happened that it went from, you know, fins to fingers just with a few changes. But if it's that easy, why can't we do it? Why can't we've we? done it.
5: Yeah, we've done it in the lab. We've done it with, um, with skates, so like rays and things like that. And we've played around with it with sharks as well. Um, If you take the the wing bud of a chicken and you duplicate it, the the most distal or far away from the body, like phalange, like the the wing bud, and you duplicate it, you get two wing buds in the adult chicken, right? It develops in two places because you just duplicate the patch of cells that's going to become the wing bud. You duplicate it once, and then you have two of them in the adult. Um, and, And it's as simple as that to get digits, right? You just take the distal end of the limb, and you get an accidental duplication, and now you've got two fingers.
0: Um, well, well, no, I meant from. I'm sorry, maybe I misunderstood that. Uh, I thought we were going from, going from a fin, two fingers, not not yeah. just having multiple fingers, but no, going it's, from.
5: It's completely well, analogous. the 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 finger, the finger is just an, an extended um, expression of the distal end of the limb. So whether or not you're working with a, a little nub on some ancient sarcopterygian fish. Right. Or you're playing around with in the lab with skates and rays and sharks today. It's the same exact process. You're just extending the expression of a gene that will eventually lead in the termination of a fin. And you're duplicating it. So two fins form instead of one and at the very tip instead of at the base. And and it's as easy as that.
0: Well, so that gets you to two fins. But the question would be, how would you get from the fins to the fingers? Like, no, that's
5: what I'm saying. What, it's at the distal end. So you've got, it would be like if I was growing
0: Oh, oh I understand you See
5: what I mean.
0: Yeah. Um, The trouble that I have with that is once we get that to happen, now we have to incorporate the fact that the nervous system has to go with it. The muscular system has to go with it because the fin is, is a completely separate system entirely structurally uh, other than you can see the comparison between the bones, but it doesn't have any of the same, muscles and tendons and whatnot that our fingers do.
5: Yes, but the, the issue with that is that the early digits that we see in the likes of Tictalic or are incredibly rudimentary, right? They're not the they're not the multi um segmented fingers that we see in later mammals even, or even early tetrapods. They're very, very rudimentary. And all they serve to do is effectively to spread out the surface area on the um on the ends of the limbs for ease in getting around. It's a locomotion thing.
2: Again, um, you don't yeah. you don't go straight from <clears throat> fins to fingers in one jump. You know, yeah. you'll get uh that the fin if it was like this, right? And then you have two bones, but that, like, that's like all they are, you know. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, over a very long period of time and many incremental changes, then you start getting the more complicated structures that we
5: have. And um, we've done this in the lab is the coolest thing, just part of sure world.
1: Just to be sure, there's not like a rapid between. Oh, I'm sorry. Out in Yeah, I yeah. yeah sure, ben, Benjamin, if you had anything. Oh, um, no, actually,
0: I uh, I lost my train of thought on that. Um, I'm trying to think. No, I don't know where I was going. Sorry about that. I, I lost uh, where
2: I even was.
5: No, it's, I mean, I Godly, you're, you know, mad props, honestly, for yeah. like just having a chat with us. I mean, it's kind of fun. Like, so
2: you mentioned awesome. earlier assumptions. Um, and you were talking about some of the assumptions that you felt were unreasonable that went into evolution. Uh, would you want to, like, elucidate what some of those assumptions are? And maybe we can tackle some of those.
0: Oh, actually,
2: that, that reminds me of
0: one of the things I was just thinking about. Rock on. for the Yeah, excellent teamwork. Um, you mentioned that we saw that uh, the the structures got in place so that way they could just spread out their hand just for a support structure. Um but is that something that we can actually see take place today? Or are we saying we see that in the geologic column, so we're assuming that it's it's transitional from one to another?
5: Well, it's more along the lines of, like, is there a benefit to the increased surface area when it comes to locomotion in things like lungfish or other sarcopterygian fish? And when we look today at these animals, when they're born and they lack that ability to kind of splay out the, the distal ends of their limbs... They don't move around as as quickly. They're sluggish. They're they're anemic in how they move around. So there is definitively a benefit to having them, right? So if you take that back into the past, what do we see? Well, we see organisms that lack the sophistication of those digits, and then the second they appear, they proliferate and they show up in pretty much everything that can glean that mutation,
0: right? Well, we well we we've established that any any genuinely beneficial you know, structure, whatnot. it can't just appear. So that's my question. When we see it just appear, are, what are we filling in the from it not being there to it being there? How are we getting to that?
5: Uh, like mechanically or in the fossil record?
0: Well, just how we're determining that it took place via evolution and not those were two different designed entities.
2: Well, there's a couple pieces. First of all, and you look down in the geologic column, you're looking through time, right? The lower layers... Um, are older than the younger layers. So, hey, cat. So, uh, you know, so, so unless the deity was like saying, okay, we're going to have the one fingered fish now, and then I'm going to wait 100 million years, and now we're going to have two fingered fish, like, unless he's like waving his wand over and over again, then, like, but that's just kind of how it would happen, you know, if that makes sense. So, unless you're like having sequential special creation, um, I guess that would explain it, but otherwise, like, I don't know how you'd get from like the fact that we're looking through time with this record and couple that with special creation. Well, I think, I yeah. think
5: the common design thing is really an interesting, like, question, um, and where I've kind of gotten with it, at least as for, for me personally, is that I find that most creationists will say, okay, I do think that, like, dogs and wolves are related, Would you feel comfortable saying that dogs and wolves are related? Yeah. Right. Okay. So dogs and wolves are related, right? How do we know that dogs and wolves are related?
0: Uh, I don't know based off of the science of it. Um, So I can't give you a hundred percent answer. I do know that, um, I know that, uh, the painted dog right is, is actually a different species of dog. It actually can't interbreed with the, uh, with the other dogs. So see that one's a hard one. Cause I mean, it, it just looks like any of the other dogs. So I would, or looks very similar. Um, so I would just say, you know, if they're on a random lineup, well, yeah, you can probably mate all those cause they all look the same, but then you figure out that it can't breed. So how does that work? Um, I think the trouble is, I don't necessarily think that evolution given The concerns that I have with the whole picture, again, there's little things where if they're by themselves, such as possibly that, um, I wouldn't be terribly opposed to it. But in the whole picture, uh, I don't think that evolution is necessarily a better option than creationism. Um, It could be how God decided to do it, but I don't actually think that in a case like that, it, it makes more sense than he built one one way, he built one another way, and they can't interbreed.
5: Yeah, I think so. The, the the area that I was kind of going with that is that it seems intuitive that dogs and wolves are related. And of course they are. We know that they are. Um, and the way that we do that is really similar to how a paternity test works. So like paternity tests, you know, we take a highly variable segment of the DNA of the genome of the human genome and we compare it between people. Um, And it should, if it's highly variable, then it's very likely that between two unrelated individuals, it's going to be different. And between two related individuals, it's more likely to be the same, which is how we determine paternity. So it's genomic similarity. Take the genome, set them side by side. How similar are they? That helps us tell how close they are, um, at least with with regard to um, their family tree, things like that. And within species, it works the exact same way except instead of using one region, we tend to try to use as much of it as we can, whole genomes in some senses, right? So we'll take the entire genome and we'll say, all right, how similar are these two genomes between these two organisms? And then using that, we can start to fill in the blanks on how closely related things are. So dogs are more closely related to wolves than they are to like coyotes, right? Um, Using this method. And the thing about this method that at least in my opinion makes it problematic for creationists is because creationists will get on board with that usually they'll get on board with that concept and then i say okay where does it stop where do you, where does it stop where does genome similarity stop equaling relation and inheritance and it starts you know being truncated up into these created kinds because most creationists will say yeah i'm cool with dogs and wolves being related or i'm cool with lions and tigers being related but Lions and tigers are like 95% similar in coding base pairs and humans and chimps are 98.8% similar in coding base pairs. So I'm looking for a standardization from the creationist side where they say, here's why we're drawing the line here, here's an empirical way to do it. And evolution when, you know, cause you just said you think that they could both be reasonable explanations for something. And to me, creation fails there. And evolution acts as an explanation for why is it that we see this convergence into the past um, of, of relationships between the genomes of organisms. Does that make sense? Sorry, yeah. I there for a minute.
0: No, that's great. Um, no, I get that point. Uh, as far as the why we see the convergence and the similarities, um, and I think I'm going to have to. Uh, make my way back after I say this, I think I'm gonna have to make make my way back to actually DNA tracing. Um, But you can see the similarities because I'm, you know, you have a common designer, well, then there's gonna be commonalities between everything to a certain degree. Um, And then there's gonna, within the DNA makeup, uh, because he's using the same DNA to make whatever it is he's making. Um, So let's go with that as if If he built uh, the base dog that now we've got all of our um, uh, domesticated dogs from, and the base feline or cat, whatever gave us that, Uh, if he made the base one of those, that's where I'm saying I don't think that the parts of evolution that we can observe and trace, like we can observe and trace a dachshund changing, like all the domesticated dogs have been created within lifetimes of, of humans um so those are things that we can observe, but the the trouble is jumping from one one structure to another structure and I, I'm sure that um the argument has been presented to you the idea of uh of loss versus gain for example, I don't necessarily have an issue with ama- anatomical losses because everything decays. Um, in fact if the world is, is, you know, I I come at this from presuppositionalist Christian worldview, which means that I'm looking at this through the grid of what we know about God. Um, What we know about him through revelation and nature is, you know, half unknown and maybe half known who knows what we don't know because he wants us to explore it and enjoy it. And uh, what he's given us is scripture is black and white in some areas, gray in other areas. Um, uh, And so, that is, I don't.
2: What was I saying just
0: before I said that? I was
2: going. You were talking about out. common design, uh, like similarities, meaning a similar designer. Yeah, um, I am, I am very very tired. I've been up that's since totally. about four a.m.
0: So I'm pretty think, sure my brain fine. just pooped out. <laughs> Whatever it is I was oh, saying,
2: please. totally yes. cool. So I wanted to hit because <laughs> uh, I'm an engineer, right? So designing things is what I do. Well, part of what I would like to do, anyway. So, um, the the common design leads to a common designer. The common like pieces, like the genetic thing, it's a common refrain from from creationists, and it, it seems very intuitive, right? If things look similar, maybe it's because they were designed by the same person. But when you're if if you were looking at it like God looked at all of things, right, and then designed them all. You would expect some similarities, but when you're actually designing things, you don't come to every problem fresh and you can take solutions from things you've done elsewhere and apply them to the problem at hand. So for example, I talked about the whales. Whales have a problem because they need to breathe air, but they have to go to the surface to do it. If the if God was just designing a whale, it doesn't seem to make much sense not to use a structure that's already great for, for getting air underwater a gill. There's no reason, there's nothing stopping this designer from taking an excellent solution that is completely unrelated to a whale and throwing it on the whale. And you can repeat that kind of logic all throughout the the animal kingdom, you know, or all the kingdoms, there's more than one. Colloquially, the animal kingdom. Uh, So... If a designer was truly designing things, I would expect we'd see those sort of things. And then there's no reason that that would map onto uh, genetic similarity. Because again, if he's designing from scratch, what, what does it matter if they're genetically similar? Who cares? You know, like just, just use the genes you have to use. You know, why? I don't want to, I want to give you time to respond. So I'm not going to keep going.
0: Sure. What, what benefit would it be? So let's go with the assumption that If God is real, he made everything for his glory, right? To one degree or another. What benefit would it have been for him to have given whales gills?
2: Well, whales then wouldn't suffocate. So um, if the whale, like when when the whale gives birth to a calf, sometimes the calf doesn't make it to the surface and it just suffocates and dies. That's that's suffering. That doesn't need to happen. Um, If the Mm -hmm. whale had gills, that suffering would be prevented. Um, It'd be less wasteful. Um, It would indicate if by better, you mean more likely to procreate and live a productive life, it would be a better design. Um, I don't have access to God's design notes. So it's possible depending on how you define this God, there could be a designed reason. Maybe he just doesn't like whales, you know, maybe it's like screw whales, you know, you want gills too bad, you know, like, I don't know, but it, At the very least, it it narrows down what kind of design parameters God could have, right, Um, and still produce the design we see.
0: Yeah, well, the the reason that I ask that is because um, it, it seems like we've got the concept that God has unlimited resources. And so with that, he has creative license to do whatever he wants to do with his unlimited resources. So we can say, well, it doesn't make sense because of X, Y, and Z losses of animals and whatnot. Um, it doesn't make sense to design them that way, and I don't actually know what the suffocation rate of whales is. I assume it's more than fish because fish can't suffocate. Um, uh, but that being said, and this is where this is kind of converging with theology, which I don't mind that. But I don't know how far we want to go into the topic because it's on evolution. Um, I mean, it's relevant, but death, you know, is introduced through sin, um, so you don't have the whales dying and suffocating were it not for sin. And so same thing with diseases, same thing with all of that, that's natural sin. Um, so again, from a creationist standpoint, the, the whale shouldn't be dying and suffocating anyway. If God designed them um, to be that way and, and not die, well, then he just designed them that way to do it. And now that sin's been introduced, uh, every creature, every mammal on earth has the ability to starve to death. So we could argue that that, you know, is a poor design because, uh, I mean, it'd be silly to say, why can't every mammal do photosynthesis? That way it never starves to death. But sure. that's just a kind of a parallel thing that I was trying to draw there between the, the, the design of the whale and another thing that could be seen as bad to us, but it may just be how God wanted to design it.
5: So how about something, though, with regard to the whales, though, that isn't perhaps brought on like that wouldn't fit in, at least in my opinion, from what I understand of the theology into that death brings sin and suffering, and therefore maybe that's the reason why they don't have gills. How about in whale development, cetaceans, like all this is actually just, so I said cetaceans because it's dolphins and whales, but w- very early on in their development when they're, they're still very small, for about two weeks, there's a period where they grow hind limbs they, their little tiny fetus grows these little hind limb buds in the back, and they stick around for a little bit, and then they're reabsorbed back into the body of the animal. And from the conventional science explanation of this, right, this is due to the fact that there was a time where these limb buds would initiate development, and eventually they would grow into these full limbs for an animal that was living on land or at least coastally. But over time, because it's metabolically costly to grow limbs when you're not using them, right. They've terminated the the development of these limbs at like a couple of weeks after they begin, right? And so then they stop and they're reabsorbed back into the organism. So this seems incredibly redundant um, and not at all. It's not detrimental to the to the um, to the fetus for it to actually grow these little hind limb buds, except maybe a little bit metabolically costly. But it's within the body of the mother, and you know the mother is huge. So it's like she she can fairly easily provide for these itty bitty little limb buds that it grows for just a brief period. Um, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense that this would be a consequence of sin. So what is? And I, I'm going to share my screen if that's okay with James, because I, I think it's a, a nice little, uh, a nice illustration, so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. That I'm not just like making making stuff up. Um, can you see we this? Know how here? much
2: you love making stuff up?
5: Yeah, yes. true. So here's their little hind limb buds here, right? Yep. During week four through nine, they grow them, and then they're gone. At week nine, they disappear, never to appear again. And yet most whales will still, most cetaceans will still uh, complete the development of a partial pelvis, right? So this creates a nice interesting prediction for evolutionary theory, right? Because if this is the case, then there should be a period in time moving backwards where ancestors of modern whales still did have hind limbs, right? But they're shorter and stubbier and kind of useless. And that's what we see in um, Basilosaurus. That's what we see in this critter, Basilosaurus skeleton, where it's got these sad little itty bitty, wimpy little hang up legs, if you can see in the very, very back there. Yeah. Or there, for instance. And they're almost entirely internal, but there they are, fully developed. And so, in this in this creature, obviously they continued to develop in the fetus's life and didn't terminate completely. But then, in modern whales, they do. So, how would you, in your opinion, like how does that square? Um, why do dolphins and whales grow these little limb buds for a period, almost as if it's recapitulating evolution?
0: Well, the the easy and probably not very satisfactory answer is that uh, if that's if that's how they were designed to develop, then but that's how they were designed to develop. Um, and I know that that's not satisfactory. So I'll try to go more into it. Um, uh, in the sense that, um, it, it seems almost more amazing to me, uh, and more in need of, of the idea of a mind or something acting in there. Um, the fact that these legs start to develop and then are programmed to reverse and stop developing, um, how did, how did it, again through chance how did it decide to do that in the womb um, what what in natural selection how how would natural selection have weeded it out so that the fetuses stop developing to a certain point in the womb uh, and then another question or another point that i would make is I, I wouldn't necessarily say we must draw a line between the um i'm just going to call it the the, the older Fish. What was the name of it with the small the Oh oh, Yeah,
5: that's fine. Yes.
0: So um, again, I'm a layman with the terms is, and whatnot. It's
5: totally okay. Um, don't worry about it. That's me in anything that I don't wax. Yeah. Well. That's and
0: see, that's, that's another thing that I see as an assumption where, sure, it could be true, but it also could just be how it's created. And we're saying, well, because we see this in this fish or in this sea creature, and then we see that this fetus does this for this very short time, but it doesn't actually do that, they're probably... You, Related, they're probably descendants, or probably however you draw that line, um, and I'm just not, I'm not convinced that that has to be the case because, um, again, what can we do? Um, I, I, I'm forgetting the word for not not morphologically the other one. What, what's uh, the word?
2: Anatomically, is that the word? <laughs>
0: anatomically, what can we do now to see anatomical gain? That's that's not just a, an addition of a finger, but anatomical gain. That's actually the the progressing and changing of a functional structure in a beneficial way. What can we do to see that now as opposed to just making assumptions about what we see happening now in a fetus versus what we see as legs or or, or real rear fins on a, a prehistoric creature?
2: OK, so. Two, two points. Uh, you talked about how would the fetus know to stop developing the legs, right? Yeah. Um, and so, again, there's no well, intelligence. I, I I do apologize, and I'm only cutting because I said
0: how would chance, not how would the fetus, but that's that's what I meant. So I do apologize I for cutting in, but go ahead. What, I'm sorry.
2: What, why, would, why would this mutation happen that led to this thing? Um, and so in the womb, there are genetic expressions that determine how long your legs grow, whether they grow you know, X, X a little bit more, X a little bit less, right? And um, every generation, there's going to be some alterations. So maybe uh, your limbs grow a tiny bit more than your parents' limbs are a tiny bit less. Cool with that so far? Yeah. Okay, cool.
0: So... Longer with, legs, shorter legs,
2: yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, every little bit of leg you grow costs energy. It's more difficult to grow, right? And so if... Um, on average, in a large population, growing, if you don't use the legs at all, not growing them will mean you have to use less calories, which means that you have more leftover for, you know, impressing the, the hot whale females, you know, et cetera. You have extra calories, right? You have extra energy, you're more fit for your environment. And so not growing the legs gives you extra resources. And so on average, over a long time, people who grew less legs, shorter legs, or less developed legs, had more calories. Now just keep doing that over and over and over again. And you get to the little itty bitty useless legs because they just stop growing them because there's no selection. It's the same reason why uh subterranean fish have eyes, but they don't work and they're all like, like useless and barely mm-hmm. functional because putting all that stuff in there cost calories and it didn't do anything for them. So they just over time, there was some variation of better and worse, worse cost less calories and it had no, no penalty. So they just kept getting worse and worse, and that, that's and how it
0: works.
5: And we're not so
2: at the end. Can I um can I
0: address something ahead. Jordan just said? Um, so for like a, for the cave fish, that's an example of of a fish that lost its its eyes. Um, and so I guess my question for that would be, uh, it, we're assuming that it had an anatomical loss, which again I'm not necessarily opposed to because I believe that everything breaks down. Um, And it randomly breaks down. The randomness is what causes the breakdown. So my question would be, if you put that fish back on the surface, is it going to get all that back? Um, Because if the chance just takes it both ways equally, well, then it should get it all back. Um, It 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 shouldn't have any. Yeah, it could. It might not. And right. And so that's that's the only point that I'm making of there are a lot of assumptions built into the evolutionary theory that don't seem to me more reasonable than the creation model. And again, you know, kind of with the, the I know we've already hashed up, but with the equation that I did, it seems fairly unreasonable with the timeline may, we have.
5: May, may I add, um, cause I want to talk about the assumptions thing if that's okay. Um, I, I understand where you're coming. I think I understand. I hope I understand where you're coming from with that. Um, but it, within science, in general, regardless of what field we're looking at, and Jordan, you can correct me if I'm wrong for, for your area of expertise. So I'll, I'll just speak for, for what I know. Um, but but typically, assumptions that are made on processes are often deemed assumptions by, by folks who are kind of outside looking in, when in reality, what it is is a process playing out that lacks a precedent to stop said process, right? So for instance, radioactive decay will occur at a similar rate constantly if you go back in time for billions and billions and billions of years. Uh, Some folks might say, "Okay, that's an assumption. But the reason why this is proposed is because there is no known way to violate that assumption. The same is true for evolution and inheritance. Right. So it's like yet we see organisms changing in small ways and in large ways today there is no reason to assume or to propose that this would be not the case if you were to go backwards in time. There is no precedent for that. It would be like saying gravity works until you go up 50 feet and then it stops working. And if I said that to Jordan, Jordan would be like, well, what makes you say it stops working? Why 50 feet? You know, and then I would have to provide a precedent for why the process ceases to behave in the way that we've only ever observed it behave at that point specifically. So, does, does that make sense? Was that coherent, Jordan?
2: Yeah, uh, um, basically uniform, at, but like the uniform nature of physics that they don't change arbitrarily.
0: So if if we're going to extend that to, kind of to, to um, DNA and to structures and whatnot, um, that would take me back to morphological versus anatomical, um, because it kind of sounds like what you just explained supports the fact that we we don't see the anatomical changes I've been describing. And so therefore, why would assume that, why would we assume they were happening if we don't see them? Whereas we do see morphological changes, so it'd be silly for someone to say, well, morphological changes never happen.
2: Okay, so let me ask a question. Uh, if you, you've you got a ho- huge variety of visual apparatus, 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 I don't know, uh, of, of structures that can right. detect photons, okay? And you've got some that like, they're just like flat, panels they just detect yes or no and then you've got a fully formed eye would you agree Mm -hmm. that that is an anatomical change
0: um yeah the, the the if things are being added to the eye such as if if one never had any concept of a lens and then the new eye does have a concept of a lens um then that would that would seem to be anatomical to me that being said though I'm answering as a layman and I don't want to be one of those people who just says, well, I don't want to walk into that question. Like I'm, I want to answer you genuinely based off what I know. So yeah, it it seems like that would be an anatomical change.
2: I am the world's biggest layman when it comes to biology. And I respect someone who can admit what they don't know. Like there's no shame in not knowing something. No one knows everything, right? There's no shame in that, that the only shame is when you pretend like, you know, and you're not willing to learn. That's the only, that's the only time there's any shame involved. So, um, okay. So, if imagine you had this flat, this flat thing, right. And the edges are going to change a little bit over time or like by random mutation, some are going to be a little bit higher. Some are going to be a little lower, you know Um, if you had, it was slightly raised, then you can start detecting angles, right. You can start saying, instead of just light, yes, no, you can start getting a little bit of directionality. You didn't have to change much, but you have that little bit of advantage, right. And now the creature who has that, gets an advantage over everybody else because everybody else can only detect yes or no, but this guy, this guy can detect where it's coming from, okay? And again, no intelligence had to be involved, just randomly, and now he'll be better fit for his environment, okay? The more it's curved, the more you can do that. Again, successfully, tiny, tiny changes. Eventually, you get to the point, you could hypothetically get to the point where it's completely closed off, and now you have very similar to an eye socket, and all you had to do was curve up slowly over generations. Each, each step comes to the benefit, Right. So it's selected for, and I'll start going faster now. So then you've got the thing, right? Well, if that fills up with fluid, which is a very simple thing to do, you're underwater. Well, now it's even better because it starts to like focus light. And so that's how you get these anatomical changes. It's small changes over and over and over again with every step being beneficial. And just it's little changes add up over time. And what the creationist is doing is saying, okay, we can have these little changes and they can add up, but you can't go past here. And the question is, "Well, well, why? Why there? Why can't why do you stop here? Why not here? why not there? Or why not there? You know, like what mechanism is stopping these small changes from well, becoming large changes?
0: So if, if I can keep running with that analogy, so once we get to the point with the cup and then the fluids in there, it, it would seem that there would be a point right that would come where the fluid will become trapped. And then that's going to start to build into the structure of the eye. Mm-hmm. Well, the trouble that I see with that is if that fluid now becomes trapped and it doesn't have any kind of a cleaning or recycling system for that fluid, well, that's going to cause all kinds of issues with. Hygienics and and then breakdown, so that's where I see from an anatomical standpoint. We're introducing one thing that, if everything else is in place, sure that could make sense. But we need a bunch of things to be happening at the same time for it to stay and for it to advance.
5: Yeah, potentially. And if who knows the myriad of different times that it's happened exactly like you said, right? Where a, a novel beneficial structure has begun. You know, from our hindsight is twenty twenty perspective. To form, and then something has gone awry, and if, and it becomes detrimental to the, to the organism that's selected against, and then you're back to square one. That probably, I mean, we see that happen now all the time when organisms are oh kitty, when organisms are born with with rare you know um, uh, mutations, and they end up with you know one too many an extra horn or an extra antler. You know, I mean, deer this happens to deer sometimes. You know, and they they get all sorts of little abnormalities. And because they don't create a benefit for the organism, they, they become cold from the population. They're selected against within nature. Uh, but sometimes these little changes are beneficial. And this is happening right now. I think it's the coast of, I think it's in Alaska. I know it's in North America. But there's a population of wolves. They're called sea wolves, which I think oh, is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I
0: know and, about that, yeah.
5: and they are slowly. Becoming more and more aquatic. They get something like 25% of their caloric intake from sea life, from marine animals. And if you look at the webbing between their paws, it's it's significantly more developed. It's thicker, it they can they can splay their paws to a much greater degree than their landlocked cousins, right? And this gives them an enhanced ability to swim. They're better swimmers. I mean, everyone who lives in that local area can can comment on that. So what? even Given that state of them now, if they continue unabetted, where's the line for you where they could not become more aquatic to the point that eventually you're looking at something along the lines of of the the evolution of whales or something like the evolution of pinnipeds or something like that? They
2: wouldn't be a whale, just to be clear. Yeah, they wouldn't.
5: It would be something like that, though. Yeah.
2: Um, So
0: I guess my question would be, how do we know that they're on this journey? And you might have a very clear answer, right? And then how do you know that the sea wolves weren't created that way? And that's just how they, they repopulate that. I mean, look at the variety of birds that we have. Uh, How hard would it be to make a wolf that is able to be in water? Some birds will die if they land in water. Other birds can feed underwater. So um, we don't have wolves varying to that degree, but again, I don't know that for sure. I'm assuming that, but how do we know the creator didn't just make that wolf the sea wolf?
5: Because right now we know that this population of wolves is new to the area. People have been, you know, living in North America for uh, tens of thousands of years, right? So these wolves haven't always been there. They're new. These are this is a new organism that is capitalizing on the fact that this area was unexploited by anything. You had a handful of wolves that were born and able to exploit the water in a way that other wolves couldn't, so they started capitalizing and exploiting on it and getting fat on seafood, while the other wolves, you know, times were times were tough inland, and they couldn't they couldn't make ends meet. And so eventually, you get this this population of wolves that all capitalize on this same resource because wolves are, of course, very social animals. This has happened in in you know since humans have effectively lived here on this continent. So we know that this has been a natural occurrence. So if nature can do it now. What, where, where's the line in your opinion? Like it, we know that God didn't specifically create these sea wolves there, right? Cause we've observed them come about.
0: Well, right. So that, I think that was my first um, question. I have two points to that. I think that was my first question of how do we know that they're new? What, what was the answer to that? How do we know that they're new and they haven't always been there and we just discovered that they were there? How do we know that?
5: I believe in this case, it's because there's nearby civilizations, right? And they've seen them slowly spend more and more time on the coast until they've eventually, and you know, these are locals. They're not scientists. It wasn't until people who actually were like, Hey, this is kind of weird. And they came down and started investigating the nature of these, these wolves that are spending much more time on the coast. I mean, it's yeah. not like they're living in the water. They're just getting mm-hmm. significantly more of their diet from the water than their more inland cousins. Right. So it's almost a transitional stage, right?
0: Yeah. Well, no, I'm, the only reason that I ask that is, again, it goes back to, well, who says it couldn't have been created that way? If in fact it is in that transitional state, um, that that's the point where, um, or that's similar to, right, Darwin with the birds on the island, there was a difference in their beaks, right? Sure. Well, if you, if you put that bird back in its native environment, it, it can also go back to having the beaks that way it was before. Mm-hmm. Um, so same thing with the wolves, and the only reason that I'm kind of, Going back to the, the anapomorphic, analogical, what was the, the A word Anatomical. Again? Anatomical. The only reason I'm going back to the anatomical changes is even with the webbing becoming greater, uh, it, it, you could be weeding out that that um, that population of wolves the same way that you, you make the dachshund really short. It, it just so happens that because they can get all this food that the ones with the the more webbing, are surviving just like the yeah yeah, just like the birds with the the more appropriate beaks are surviving but that's just right but that's just the change of what's already there i'm not seeing new structures forming out of that it's just changing what's already there
2: so i'm super excited because you're like you're like right there so that we're seeing changes what's already there evolution works on what's already there and it changes what you already have and repurposes it for something else. And so you have changes to what already exists and those changes are beneficial or not. And the beneficial ones make you more likely to survive. And eventually, eventually over a very long time scale, those become a new thing. So if this wolf kept having wider splayed things, eventually, you know, they'd be able to splay even wider. Like you can just see how it would get to something new. You know, if it just, you just let it keep going.
5: The question that Jordan poses there is, how could we show that that is the case, right? The fossil record, we look back in time and we say, has this ever happened before? Has it ever been that we've seen this massive change in an environment that would have allowed an organism to benefit by capitalizing more on the coast? And that's what happened in the Fayum of Egypt during the Eocene, right? We see first no coastal animals, and then all of a sudden critters that start looking like they're exploiting the coast. How do we know that they're exploiting the coast? Because when we take the isotopes of their bones, we start to see that they're spending time in seawater. They're incorporating seawater into into various metabolic processes that they have to undergo day to day. Can you I know? hit? And, lo and behold, eventually, it's it's aquatic.
2: Good one thing. One thing that you, you've said it several times, so um, but, but we haven't really addressed it directly. You keep asking, well, couldn't the, the creator just made it this way? And The answer to that will always be yes. And an omnipotent creator could do whatever he wants, right? He could have made the entire universe last Tuesday and we'd have no way of knowing. Okay. Um, But you get to the point where that becomes an ontologically expensive model. And it's impossible to falsify. If you allow any evidence, no matter how complicated, to fit, well, God just did it that way. God just did it that way. God just did it that way. Then you've made it so that no matter what the evidence is, you can never possibly change your mind because you'll just incorporate in your model, but that's ad hoc. It's kind of like, if I said, um, the, the, the government is tracking me, there's a secret government and they're tracking my every move. Well, if I want to, I can add any evidence into the secret government's tool bag. If I want, they control the lights, they control the video. Like I can do whatever I want, but is that a good model? I mean, it's not falsifiable. It's probably not a great model, right? I think you run into the same thing with this this constant God touching the scales all the time, you know?
0: Uh, I'm trying to think of, um, uh, I don't want to, um, I definitely don't want to discredit the point that you're making. I guess I would say, sure, that's true, but just because that wouldn't be an exciting answer doesn't mean it's not true. Um, so, and yeah, and I, I'm sure that, you know, you're you're okay with the, the fact that it doesn't make it not true. So I guess that's again,
2: um,
0: I, I'm having trouble again seeing how the evolutionary model is more convincing than the creation okay. model, and. If, I did want to go back to something that you said earlier, but I do want you to make this point first that you want to make.
2: Real quick. Uh, so, the way we do that is by making predictions and then testing if they're true. Because if we have this model and we're going to say, okay, we don't know what we're finding, but we are predicting if our model is right, we will find this thing. And then if we do find this thing, it means either our model is correct or God just so happened to create things so it happened to look like our model, right? So, a good example of that happening is TikTok. They looked at uh, if, we, I'm not going to go through the details real quick, but we have a creature, we have a creature like this and a creature like this, with, and we should have something with features in between and if our model is true, it will occur in this kind of environment at this time. So let's go somewhere where we know that environment existed at this time and look, and sh- lo and behold, there it was. It was exactly what they predicted. Now, if evolution wasn't true, why would it be there? Like, there's no reason for it to be there if evolution is false. Unless oh, God...
0: If, it, if your prediction is based off the fact that something built that way would be suitable for that environment, that could also support the creation theory because he creates something suitable for that environment.
5: So, so, but to that point, that goes back to the limb buds in, in the whales, right? I mean, that, that's completely detached from any kind of environmental requirement. The fact that the limbs appear and then they're reabsorbed, it's, com- it's, it's completely inconsequential. But under the lens of evolutionary theory, it, it fits like a puzzle piece right? Whereas from the creationist standpoint, it's like, well, I guess God must have a purpose for it. I guess we just don't know what it is yet. Um, so it, it, for me, and what Jordan was kind of alluding to there, I think, is that it boils down to explanatory power, things like predictions, right? Um, and, and evolution, you know, w- reaches those in spades, right? We're, we're talking about massive gains in, in areas like paleontology, finding Tiktalik was a big one. But um, in, in addition, like evolution completely sculpts the way our medicine works and the way that our agriculture functions, right? I mean, we use the principles of natural selection to take wild mustard plants into the the wide bounty of different types of organisms that we eat today that we put on our table. Um, So that's like taking it to the next level. That's taking these natural traits and just amping it up to 11 because they're beneficial to us. That's what nature does, but in the context of the environment in which the organism
0: Liz. Well, the the trouble with that, and uh, I know that this is, is not well received, um, and I, I really don't want to go down this trail because it, it it usually doesn't get a whole lot. It doesn't get very far in the argument is whatever we do, whatever we do to, you know, intervene and, and to mingle in controlled environments, such as um, I was listening to actually a debate the, the other day uh, between, um, I think it was R and Ron uh, and... Dr. Fuzz or, or whatever, but he was talking about how the fact that one of the troubles he has with the RNA, with RNA sequencing or production or something is that in the testing, they use not only distilled water, but a certain type of UV light that's not found in, um in the not found naturally. So the problem is when we start tinkering, we're kind of proving the concept that in order for this stuff to happen, it involves a mind. I don't want to just say, so then everything's discredited because God gave us a mind to tinker but that, that the problem is I can't help but see how that fits the creationist model uh, but the mind seems to be an unknown that's very hard for the evolutionary model and I can't say that means they're never going to have an explanation for it because I think I think we have to be really careful with our our predictive powers. Um, but right now the mind itself is a, is a really hard thing for the evolutionary the mind. The, the mind yeah, And consciousness. Oh, consciousness. Uh, Well, and the ability to the not the idea of of existing, but the idea of of knowing that you exist kind of thing. Because
3: obviously animals
0: exist, animals can eat, animals can do things. You can train a monkey to to push a button to get a pebble. You can teach monkeys sign language and whatnot. Um, but the question would be if monkeys are just in nature, would they find a need to teach themselves sign language? Well, at some point, humans did. At some point, humans realized there's a need for sign language. Um, and so we're we're kind of out mentally, we're able to see outside of our present state of being and say, well, what does the future look like? What does the past look like? And how can we manipulate that? It seems that animals do not, any animal does not have anywhere near the capacity that we do.
5: So I think, I, I think that I've got an interesting take on this, because I would argue that Almost everything, with with one big glaring exception, almost everything that humans do is simply a gradient of behavior of something that other primates do. So chimpanzees have politics, they form coalitions, they mourn their dead, um, they laugh when they're tickled, they play pranks on each other. Campbell's monkeys have syntax and grammar that they use when they communicate with one another vervets will lie to get what they want they'll they'll make the call for oh my god there's a cheetah and then when everyone leaves they, they go down and seize the prize that everyone's trying to to monopolize the fruit or whatever chimpanzees will specifically warn their colleagues uh, if they if you like put a plastic snake on the ground in front of the mountain gombe right they've done this experiment where they'll they'll put a snake on the ground and chimpanzees will selectively warn members of their troop but only the ones that they knew couldn't see the, the snake. They won't warn the ones that they know could see the snake in eye shot. They'll only warn the ones that couldn't see it, right? They're capable of having favorite tools and teaching their young to use the tools that they like to use. Different chimpanzee societies have completely arbitrary cultural rules for the tools that they use that they pass down to their offspring, right? So. We don't have a monopoly on this, this idea of, of culture and our, this idea of warfare and this idea of altruism. And I mean, chimpanzees, they're the worst swimmers in the world. And yet we've got video footage in zoos of when a chimpanzee falls into their local boat, them, some of them will risk their lives to try to save their fallen comrade, right? Um, we've done tests with them where they for altruism, where they'll give them a blue and a green token, or sorry, a blue and a red token. And they'll say, okay, if you give us the blue token, then you get five grapes. And if you give us the red token, then you get two grapes, but your buddy one cage over also gets two grapes. And they will overwhelmingly prefer to give the altruistic coin. They won't always, but more often than not, they'll give the coin that's going to get their buddy some grapes. The funny thing is when you open up the screen in the back so the rest of the troop can see them, then all of a sudden they're really, really generous and altruistic because everybody can see that they're making the selfish or the altruistic choice. So the idea that the mind is something that's exclusive to humans, I don't think we can show that to be the case. Um, so but that's just my primatology.
0: What story. was the what was the monkey that warned about the cheetah? Um, what, oh, whoa, vervet monkeys?
5: Of, yeah, marvit, vervet. Marmot? Vervet, V-E-R-V-E-T. vervet. You've made
2: um, a terrible so mistake by wandering into primatology. With
0: <laughs>
5: horrible mistake. Well,
2: see, so the thing is...
0: And and I think that so this is um, this is kind of my big uh, big powwow into the debate world. The problem with me is I'm not a great debater because I like to have conversations, and so it's like sometimes like man, you're really supposed to be like fighting that. It's like no, I kind of just want to learn. Um, oh, so I'm going to cool. try to try I just, to I
5: just, do I just that as well. at you. That was not yeah. nice to really Do um, I totally gish gallop at you there? That was not cool. Sorry. So
0: with with the velvet monkeys um what were they actually called with the v right
5: Oh, v-e-r vervet vervet yeah
0: uh, with the monkeys with the, we all know yeah. which one's there. With, with the vervet monkeys my question is did the chimps look at what the vervet monkeys do and maybe they don't live in the same place but did the chimps look at the vervet monkeys and say that's a really good idea i'm going to take that idea and then they start doing the cheetah thing because a human would do that because we're outside of what we're just programmed to do so that that's my question
5: yeah um so vervets and chimps they don't tend to live in the same areas vervets live in savannas and chimpanzees tend to live in you know more lush tropical rainforest they live in like the congo central africa west africa and vervets tend to live in like south africa but that being said um, chimpanzees will observe if like one chimpanzee there's this really funny example um, they, they, of proto fashion is what they call it, but I, I think that's really generous. Where one chimpanzee female, for no reason, she took a piece of grass and stuck it behind her ear and just started walking around. And when it would fall out, she'd pick it back up and stick it back, always the same ear. And every day she would get up, find the piece of grass, the same piece of grass, and stick it in her ear. And within days, other chimpanzees, first it started with other females. They started saying, Oh, that's kind of weird. They started picking up grass and putting it behind their ears. And then and it was all younger females, right? Because they have a hierarchy. And then the older females would do it. And then some of the males started taking it up and doing the same thing. Right. And this is like really weird, right? Because this is there's no benefit to sticking a piece of grass in your ear, right? They just did it because they felt like doing it, right? Um, and and there was no, there was no um Bene- There's no fitness benefit. It's just a cultural just diffusion of a behavior. That- Darn kids
2: yeah. with their blades of grass.
5: <laughs> yeah, they're modern fashion, right? But they'll do it. They'll do it with um, tools too. So female chimps are are smaller than males, and so they don't tend to go on the hunts as often. So what they do instead is that when male chimpanzees will go hunting, they'll take a, a stick and sharpen it with their teeth, their canine teeth, and they'll use it to skewer bush babies in areas where they can't reach with their with their fat hands right? And they will teach that to other females, right? Um, And I believe, I can't remember if, I can't remember the specific study, but I believe they'll only teach it to females, which is interesting because it's basically saying, look, if you're a male, you don't need this, this skill, but if you're a female, you will. Hmm. Um, That
0: that it's, it's hard because that's, to me, that seems like different ways that animals are just kind of programmed to operate. And I don't want to discredit the grass the grass blade thing, because that's really weird.
5: Um, It's like, why would, I don't know. I don't have an answer for it either. But
0: with with the chimps, like, um, you know, sharpening the stick, if that's within their capability to do, um, then it wouldn't seem absurd that they would teach others to do that because, you you know, dogs teach their young how to hunt. Lions teach their young how to hunt. Birds push their, their baby birds out of the nest. So it doesn't seem unusual in that sense. It's There is a difference between what a chimp can carry out versus what a bird can carry out. But I'm seeing the same thing of, this is how a chimp's designed to operate, this is how bird's designed to operate. So in general, they're gonna operate the way they operate. But humans, we have the ability to completely defy what, what any social norm is and completely do the opposite of how we think we're supposed to operate. Um, and so we don't have to go, too far down the consciousness path, because I'm getting a bit, I don't want to say I'm getting a bit tired, but I'm not sure I can handle a full change into that. Um, But it just seems like there's such a difference in our awareness of our ability to change from what's natural to us versus animals do what's natural to them. And that's just what's natural to them.
1: This may be you a, go a good ahead, opportunity to jump into the Q and A if you guys are all ready. Yep, let's do it.
5: This this was really fun, and I I want to say you know I mean you didn't have to stick around, Ben. You really didn't. You didn't have to stick around and like have a chat with us. Like literally, I mean I don't I didn't think this felt like a debate. I thought this felt like a fun discussion. But um, you know Which I I, 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 anyway. I really appreciated it. So and I thought that you asked really good questions, and you seem like you are really. Um, giving a lot of thought to all this stuff, and so
0: awesome. Yeah, yeah I um, uh, I I know that um, my uh, my co-interlocutor had his, his reasons for leaving, but I I wasn't I've heard his I've heard everything he offers, so I was really you know expecting to kind of write off of all the points that he made. So I do apologize, I didn't bring more yeah, points. Totally. I wanted to make a
2: a single yeah. punchy one, and, and that's what I had. Um, I just re- Right before we get to q and I just want to say that I, I'm i a skeptic. That's sense for my identity. And I super respect someone who can say they don't know something because a lot of people have are really uncomfortable admitting that for some reason. Mm-hmm. So gold star, you know, like that. that's what I like to see. I think if more people did that, we'd be better off as a society. And now we can yeah. answer people's and, questions.
0: And, and to be a bit pokey, I think uh, some advocates of, of evolution need to be a little more open to to riding on or to uh, kind of owning the results of not knowing some things. And uh, if you want to have confidence in something, you know that that's that's fine. Um, but there's things we don't know. And so we, we have, to, I think we have to be careful before we say, well, this is how it works because we don't actually know it works that way.
5: We know way less than we often think that we know. I think that the more you tend to dig into a subject, like the best, The best sign that you're on the right track as far as learning goes is when you sit back and you go, oh, crap, I don't know anything about this. Like, I thought I knew. It turns out I don't know anything. There's so much more here than I could have ever imagined. But that's, you know, I mean, to be like kind of like a gigantic like dork or whatever, like that's the cool part about learning and about science and, you know, about um, kind of opening your mind up to places that you you know, aren't as well read in the first place. Yeah,
0: and I, and I would extend that um, to philosophy and theology as well. I think that I think right. that's an important yeah. principle for all of all of the realms that human intellect
2: can plunge into. You want to? I don't want to keep rambling. I know John, James wants to get to the Q and A.
1: We can jump into it right now. I want to say thanks so much for your questions, folks. We do appreciate it. And we're going to jump right into it to get through as many as humanly possible. Contrary in 420 says, does evolution exist for consciousness? If so, how?
2: That's a great question. And nobody knows the answer to the like the question of consciousness. is. It's an active area of research.
5: Yeah, I think I think an important thing to note, though, is that as far as consciousness goes, I think we can make an excellent case for the presence of different levels of consciousness in living organisms today, right? Like no one no one here would argue that like a clam is less conscious, quote unquote, than like a dog, right? Um, the, the, the ability to have certain levels of cognition um, and respond to varying levels of more complicated stimulus. Like these are what we tend to do when we're gradating how conscious, quote unquote, an organism truly is. Now as for how it evolved in the first place, I would propose there is a massive benefit to being able to know that you are a thing and that things are happening around you. So once it did arise, whatever it is, uh, I would propose that that would experience a massive selection.
1: You got it and thank you very much for this question. Coming in from Mango T says, Ben, where do the essential building blocks of matter originate from? Are you aware of infinite regression and its fallacy?
0: well again coming from from my view uh, the the building blocks that if everything was created all at the same time then it's it's our it's all already in the thing that was created um, and as far as to the second question i i'm not uh, i don't think i'm familiar enough with that term to actually explain that so
1: you got it in there. this one from mr monster says first off we would still have discovered this process of evolution even if Darwin was never born, evolution is a real process you don't understand. I'm not sure if that was... That, I think that's... Do that. you? That's,
0: um, <laughs> that's, that's mostly true, uh, as far as me not understanding it. And it's probably also true that um, this theory certainly could have come about. But uh, as much as I don't know, uh, unfortunately, I see a lot of things that we actually don't know about evolution. And that's where the big... Um, The skepticism is, for me, is it's in the unknowns that we have a lot of confidence in.
1: This one from Mango T says, Ben, these organisms that have evolved into a human would mean these tiny organisms are collectively intelligent. Therefore, we are not in control.
0: Well, I don't think that's the case.
1: This one coming in from Josiah Hanson says, Talking Snake says, On Today... Enshin May, thank you for that. Josiah, native atheist says science deniers keep losing these. Let's see. We uh, really do, I do have to mention, folks. Do, though we appreciate your super chat support, the more questions regarding the actual content rather than calling people science deniers, it it really can uplift the value of the Q and A if they're more sincere questions rather than uh, calling people names. Black Panther, thanks for your question. Says if evolution were true, then how come? Nephilim let's see okay that's another uh personal attack mango t thanks for your question Mm -hmm. says erica do you believe evolution is similar to cinderella given they are both let's see let's see fairy tales and should not be to be fair to both (laughs) sides again we are looking for more serious questions because that is something that during the podcast some people are like we you know they're like yeah we're used to like during the q a more sincere questions rather than calling things fairy tales or name calling but if you want to respond to erica you can um, no, that's okay. <laughs> this one coming in from appreciate your question, Mango T says Ben. It's called natural selection, not selection. It's the natural surroundings that are indirecting organisms strong enough to evolve. I
5: think.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get I get that, and I I touched on that. Um, I have no no problem with the with the environment conditioning something that's already there. Uh, my problem is how it gets there to begin with. And um, again, I'm not saying it's impossible, but the math that I showed shows it's incredibly unlikely that it would actually happen through randomness, which, uh, again, I I know we discussed it, but it's happening through randomness. It's, It's chance.
1: Gotcha. And thanks for your question. Coming in from Experiments in Prebiotic Chemistry says, hey, Erica, I think you dropped the ball here. You forgot to ask, quote, what is the mechanism for supernatural causation? how does an immaterial mind do anything at all i guess they're asking i'll give you a chance to defend yourself erica yeah,
5: no i mean i i understand where they're coming from that's not usually my style of debate though i'm i'm here to discuss evolution um and you know as far as i'm concerned as far as my opinions are concerned if, if someone wants to take the stance that you know god did something and they're taking that as a faith claim that god just did it because they believe that that's what happened um, that's outside of the purview of science, as far as as I'm concerned. Um, it's only when folks want to come in and say, you know, science confirms, uh, you know, young earth creationism, or science confirms that evolution is bad, that, that, ooh, I post up, I square up.
1: You got it. And Ben will give you a chance to respond to that, since it's a question in a way to you. What is the mechanism for supernatural causation? How does an immaterial mind do anything at all?
0: Um, the, well... It's an immaterial mind, so it's a mind. So that's how it does things. Uh, it's just immaterial. And uh, that's just to say that if God is completely outside of his creation, that's not a contradiction. That's just something we can't understand because we are the creation inside of it. So uh, I don't think the second point is is uh, takes anything away from the concept of God. I think it's a misunderstanding.
1: Gotcha. thank you very much for your question. Discovering Ancient History says, just want to give a shout out to Erica. Great job. You have a fan out that's there? Mr. Monster says, what is the third way? And Ann Rorovic says, Ben, there's a one trillion chance that I'll hit the fly on the wall from 10 feet away. Can I hit it on the first try? Probability problem solved.
0: Uh, I don't actually know if that's how, how the chances work. Again, you actually, because you have a mind and because you have the ability to tinker, you could do all the math. And actually make your chances like a 50-50 shot. So that that's my point. The the chance issue is not a problem if you if you stick a mind in there to manipulate it. It's if the ball threw itself somehow and it completely randomly came to be, that that's what I would argue against.
1: You got it. There's one coming in from do appreciate it. Decepticons Forever says it's truly mind blog. Let's see. Like a minefield out there.
5: Uh, James he it's a start and stop show.
1: yeah i do want to encourage you folks uh we are looking for more sincere questions rather than just calling things fairy tales or just nonsense that that doesn't really add a ton of in terms of like insight or deep thought into the uh the q a let's see i'm gonna try to can i
0: can i ask a question real quick
1: well i i'm gonna finish this one giving it the most charitable interpretation There, saying ben let's see How can you, Ben? How would you explain the supernatural? Like, what reason do you have to give for thinking it's real in terms of its explanatory role in reality? Um, The
0: how would I explain the supernatural? Well, the supernatural occurs through the supernatural being, who again would be God, which we go back to that mind question originally. He's outside of 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 our realm, of his created realm, so. He's able to fully intervene however he wants to because we're his creation. Um, I don't know if that answers that the best. I wasn't particularly expecting that question, so I do apologize.
1: You got it. And then I think, did you say you had a question, Jordan?
0: No, um, I did. I, I actually oh, wanted to ask Erica because um, I wanted to know this, but I couldn't get a definitive answer. On um, So for the great apes, there's there's humans, there's gorillas, there's chimps, there's yes. orangutans. Yes. And then is there also bonobos or are they a type of chimp?
5: Well, so the thing is they're their own species. So they're they're pan paniscus, and then chimpanzees are pan-troglodytes and then there's subspecies of common chimpanzees. So generally speaking, we consider, we'll say chimps and bonobos because they're both a member of that same genus. They share pan. Um, right. so you'll, as far as like, it depends on if you're asking how many species, right, or how many genera of apes are there.
0: Okay, so how, how many great apes are there? Five or four? I guess is my question.
5: I I think bonobos deserve their own thing. I think they're genetically distinct enough, and I think that they are certainly behavioral, behaviorally distinct enough. So I would say five. I would say okay. mean, bonobos, chimps, humans, gorillas, and orangutans.
0: In my that's a side note that in my preparation for this, I couldn't get a clearance in my mind. Sorry, James. That that was really bugging me. So
1: <laughs> no problem. No problemo. Joshua Alec, thanks for your question, says, Benjamin, a common YEC objection is, quote, no fish has ever evolved into a non-fish. Evolution responds, quote, individuals don't evolve, populations do, unquote. What are the strengths and weaknesses of that response, Benjamin?
0: Um, Well, I I think it's a good theory. Uh, I guess I'd want to see, again, anatomic changes in a population today um, that are structural, that fully function that are beneficial. If we want to go off the geologic column and the fossil record, again, that's where I see the assumptions being plugged in. Um so I think I'll leave it there.
1: Gotcha. And pivot Cyroy says after the last couple of dumpster fires, glad to finally see some decent moderating. Compliments are due when they are due. Thanks for your kind words. Appreciate your compliments. Although we have to say I have to say at the same time, we believe giving the speakers a lot of freedom such that when tonight it goes peacefully and it's more calm of a conversation and it's not a dumpster fire absolutely great it's organic that's the way we like it sometimes it's going to be organic and it's going to be fiery this ain't your grandma's debate channel it's just the way it's going to be so i don't have any apologies experiments in prebiotic chemistry says that should be the slogan for youtube your youtube channel erica quote i'm not just making stuff up unquote
5: (laughs) it's got to have like two cartoon hands. Like I swear, I'm not just making this up.
1: (laughs) You got it. Fred and fly. Fred and six fly says I'm here for the lecture in biology by Erica. Go Erica, go. You have a fan out there.
5: That's very kind. Again, you know, Jordan's right. You you really have to be careful when you bring up the primate stuff around me. I, I, I try not to bring it up myself because I know my triggers. So, but it does happen.
1: You got it. Thank you very much for your question. This one coming in from Kent Wood says, we quote, we live in a holographic fractal Mandelbrot projected by collective consciousness, experiencing itself subjectively, unquote. That's from Vinnie Eastwood. Thank you all. Cool. And thank you very much. Sunflower says, Erica, do you, do primates commit suicide? As in, have they been observed to take actions that they knew would directly result in their immediate death?
5: I don't know. I know they they engage in risk, like highly risk averse or highly high risk behavior. I suppose I would say, um, and they, I believe they do so when cortisol levels are high. So they they do it at higher rates when they're like depressed. I guess you would say. I'm putting it in quotation marks to avoid anthropomorphizing. But as far as suicide goes, I don't know. I'm, I'm not I've not really looked into it. It. It wouldn't surprise me though if if primates that are kept in you know deplorable conditions, animals in general are known to do this, where they'll just stop eating, you know, because they're being kept in like a concrete cell where it's like there's there's nothing for them to do. They just get depressed and they kind of give up. Um, but whether or not you could call that suicide in the same sense that we refer to to, to human the the that in humans, I believe in mean, humans, I don't know.
1: You got it. And thank you very much. For this question, I want to remind you folks. Our guests are linked in the description. We've got so, some more questions, but I do want to just give a quick reminder of that as we really do appreciate our guests. And if you want to hear more from them, oh, it doesn't have to end here. You can find Erica's Jordans and Benjamins and Nephilim. Oh, that's right. Not yet Benjamins, but if he gets one in the future, we'll put it in their forum and Nephilim Freeze links in the description. We do really encourage you check those links out and topic discuss says i just want to know when erica is going to let me interview her on my video podcast
5: shoot me an email but these days my emails are i get back slower it's it's busy right now man it sucks being an adult is hard
1: amen to that zagros Osman says damn erica you are on absolute fire today
5: that's very kind. I, again, it, I, I'm sure that came in at the exact moment that I started waxing poetically about primates, so.
1: You got it. in Vandalia 1998 says, can't think of a good question since I was just able to get on, but wanted to cheer on Erica and Jordan. Also Erica, poke, poke, poke.
5: Vandalia, I owe you an email.
1: Then Edward Redbeard, thanks for your question as well, says, question for Erica, how many generations to fixate a mutation in sexual species. How many mutations to subspeciate is the reason you never use exact numbers because you conclude the time frame does not fit.
5: No, the reason I don't use exact time frames is because it's incredibly dependent on the environment and it's incredibly dependent on how beneficial the mutation actually is. Uh, Population genetics and how mutations move to fixation is so much more complicated than even i can wrap my head around and i've i've taken like you know soft courses on it so i i tend to not put numbers to it simply because as more information comes to light about whatever specific example we're talking about uh there's there's always going to be room for tweaking if that if that is appropriate if that makes sense
1: you got it and also thank you edward edward said my question is my my question is sincere and i i just realized this was the same question cuz i thought for sure it was going to end with is the reason you never use exact numbers because you know evolution is a myth and I was going to be like, ah, just, that's like, folks, I just, I I know everybody's a rhetorician, but I'm just like, I I appreciate your sincere question. You can't eat
5: rhetoric like that. You really just can't.
1: Mark Reed says, so thank you, Edward, for being sincere and that it wasn't that. Mark Reed says, I want to give full credit to Benjamin for flying solo and carrying his side alone. Always rough to take on multiple people alone. And he did great.
0: Uh, well, I appreciate that, but uh, my my interlocutors were incredibly friendly, uh, and I really enjoyed this, so uh, thank you all.
5: Yeah, I enjoyed this too. This was super fun.
1: We only have two more. And topic discusses, question for Erica. Mm. Erica, why do we depict Neanderthals as hairless? How do we know that versus having, or how do we know that versus them having more body hair? Also, did their large occipital lobed lobe make it easier for them to see at night? I have a lot more questions.
5: Ooh, those are some good questions. Yeah. So in the case of Neanderthals, that that how hairy is the hominin is a really good question. But it tends to be applicable usually only from like laid earlier than Homo heidelbergensis because with Homo neanderthalensis Neanderthals we have their genome, so we know about how hairy they are because we have access to the genes that control for hair growth all all across their bodies. We also know that these guys were probably wearing a lot of clothes because they were living in Eurasia. Um, so in addition, like, or in combination with having their genome, we also have a lot of uh, support for a lot of their behavior to come to the conclusion that no, these guys were not covered with hair. Now, once you get into like Homo erectus and a little bit earlier, it becomes a lot more of a question. As far as the occipital bun goes, the occipital lobe, those massive honking occipital lobes that these guys were sporting, I believe based off of the endocast material that we have from them that it didn't have to do with their um with their uh, visual acuity and part of the reason i think we know this has to do with not just the endocast but also the actual size of their orbits they actually i memory serves they actually have smaller eyes than humans do they're less neonatic than we are so they would have been pretty poor at at actually capturing light although their their ability to differentiate between colors during the day like all other diurnal primates would have been uh, incredible just like ours is so
1: You got it. And thank you very much for this question coming in from Tig Duan says, Hi, Benjamin. I disagree with your position, but I really enjoyed your civility. I hope you do more debates.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that a lot.
1: You have got a lot of endurance, Benjamin, as well. And in fact, both all three of you, Erica and Jordan, because all three of you, I think, are on the East Coast, which is so we appreciate you staying up so late with us. And especially again, Benjamin, thanks for hanging in there. As I know, it can be uh, mentally simulating and exhausting as you're uh, here by yourself. But want to say, folks, Erica, Jordan, and soon, if not ne- or I should say, soon if Benjamin gets a link, but also Nef. All linked in the description. So if you want to hear more, you can click on those links below. Contrarian420 with a last-minute super chat says, Tip for the House. Thanks for providing an unbiased platform for debate that is solely needed. Thanks so much, Contrarian. That really does mean a lot. We appreciate that. And so I'm going to be back in a moment to let you know about upcoming juicy debates that we are absolutely excited about, as well as some inside details about the upcoming conference, the first-ever Modern Day Debates debate con in january in person in dallas I want to say thanks one more time though erica jordan and benjamin it's been a true pleasure to have you
5: it was a blast to be here thank you yeah it was Fantastic. a pleasure
1: thank you 100 percent. the pleasure is all ours and i'll be right back folks in just a moment.